Welcome in, everyone. Hey, everybody. It's been a long time. (laughs) It has been a very long time. This is Everything Sucks. Let's fix it. My name is Ben Mayer. My name is Anthony Buono. Today is October 24th, 2023. Um, God, it's been been about three weeks since we last recorded. I had a vacation. I also had a vacation. Yeah. Um, We have lives, too. We do. We have a lot to cover. I'll say up front, the biggest current event, which has been covering everything in the news for the past about two weeks now. We're not going to get to it until the end of this podcast because we decided to make it our deep dive. That's Israel-Palestine and everything that's going on there. So don't worry. We're getting to it, even though it's not at the beginning. Yeah, it's definitely the most important thing. We gave it the most amount of research time, you know, Uh, not to say that we're experts on it. Uh, I don't think it's a good look for, you know, two white dudes to be able to solve Israel-Palestine after doing research for two weeks. But we did give it a lot of thought and we definitely did a lot of work to have a good conversation about it at least. Yeah. So we'll get to it. But first, we're going to start off with some good news on the inflation front. Some general good news. Not the best news, but good news. So Mm -hmm. the September uh, Consumer Price Index report has been released and we saw pretty much inflation being flatlined. Mm-hmm. There's really no change. Yeah. Um, the month over month inflation change is 0.4, which is not what you want to see. But, you know, going from August to September, we're talking being at 3.8 to staying at 3.8. <laughs> yeah. So there, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have the decline in core inflation. Now, we always talk about this. What is core inflation? Core inflation is inflation minus food and energy because food and energy are the most volatile uh, commodities, right? Mm-hmm. So with core CPI still coming down, core CPI has not increased substantially in the entire year. So we've only been going in the right direction. Yeah. I, this inflation report, honestly, I don't think requires too much of our time. Uh, prices were mostly driven by gasoline, which came because OPEC, specifically Saudi Arabia and Russia, clamped down on their supply a little bit because they wanted to drive up prices and profitability of the oil that they were exporting. Uh, Economists that I've read all expect these energy prices to kind of level out by the end of the year. So it's not something to super worry about in the long term. And then the other biggest piece of this were were rents, um, housing, shelter costs. But as I also dug into this a little bit more, I found that um, economists kind of don't care about shelter costs, at least on a monthly basis in CPI, because these costs are can be reflective of leases that were signed anywhere up to 12 months in the past. It doesn't really make sense to be like, oh, rents were specifically up in this current month. Well, that could just, we don't know what that's reflecting exactly. Yeah, it takes a long time for shelter to be reflected in the CPI reports. And we mm-hmm. are starting to see it, right? Shelter has been coming down mm-hmm. over the last, like the rate in which shelter is increasing has been coming down, you know, month over month, which is good. Um, but, you know, it's just a hard thing to, because you sign a lease, you sign your lease, you're in that lease for a year. Mm-hmm. It's hard for that uh, interest rate pressure to catch up to your r- monthly rent. Yeah, definitely. Um, but it looks like Jerome Powell is still flirting with the idea of raising rates. I think... We say this all the time. The Federal Reserve is a perception game more than Mm. anything else. He just needs to show that he still has his hand on the steering wheel. He doesn't have to turn it. He doesn't even want people to know that he's definitely going to turn it. He just wants people to know that he can turn it if he wants to. Yeah. Well, because that's also going to prevent 
vendors from raising their prices, mm -hmm. right? If he is creating the perception of an economy where money is tighter, then vendors aren't going to want to raise their prices. And that controls the inflation almost just as much as the higher rates actually do themselves. Totally. And now I don't want to go too much depth on uh, too much in depth on this, but we ha are seeing some troubles in the bond market as well. Um, 10 year bonds have recently gone up to 4.9%, which means that bonds purchased eight years ago are way less valuable than bonds you could purchase right now. Okay. And a lot of banks and bond investors, which are supposed to be the most stable type of investing you can get, are now in trouble because they're sitting on a buttload of bad bonds. And because we now mm. have this massive spike in bond prices, we could see another banking crisis like we saw with the Silicon Valley Bank. I'm So I don't think I quite get this, right? Mm -hmm. they're, you're say, you say they're sitting on bad bonds. Mm -hmm. The bonds they have are paying out at lower rates than current bonds right but not at negative rates not at so negative rates. why does this seem like a problem well who would want to buy those bonds okay right so, and they they didn't are you saying they didn't really intend to sit on these bonds and let them and collect interest from them they intended to sell them at um like sell them at higher principal values yeah they, they they expected it to gain value over time but now there's no point to ever buy those bonds okay right they're just there there's zero opportunity to them sure you know if you can why would you buy a bond making you one dollar and you could buy a bond making two yeah well i i my my line of thought here is like would it be okay if they just collected interest oh yeah and they just the sat bonds? on the bonds yeah yeah not really you have to be able to trade those types of assets pretty okay. frequently right okay so that, that there's some issues with the bond market there, which is all a it's all a function of interest rate increases, right? That's what happens mm -hmm. when interest rates go, and it's also due to our ballooning deficit, which is a problem, because because our deficit is so high, the Federal Reserve keeps issuing new bonds, and now the Federal Reserve is issuing a bunch of new bonds at that higher rate, further devaluing the the lower interest bonds that were given out eight years ago yeah. so it's a whole mess it but worrisome. it's a part of the course um we'll see what happens there but I, I do think there will be some trouble in the market over the next like week or so with regards to that all right cool let's move into the speaker of the house debacle disaster <laughs> which has just been such a hell of a joyride oh my god I, it's just insane dude th this is at least our third episode maybe our fourth episode talking about this and like there's no end in sight no and what's killing me is we were talking about this before we started recording we're getting bored of it yeah like we're getting we're sick of it we don't want to be talking about the same current events every week but our government is in such a standstill that there's there's nothing else to talk about this is what's happening yeah you know and, and it is and it does matter like it matters it a lot it matters a lot that they can't get a speaker but the problem is we're just going to come back every episode and tell you yeah they still can't get a speaker because you know, that's what's happening. And it's only funny for so long, yeah. right? It's only funny for so long. Now we're sitting here and we're like, oh man, haha, McCarthy, we got him. We told him, we told you that this was going to happen. And yeah. and then it makes, it really makes me realize like, oh, wait a second, we're run by buffoons. We're totally. run with people who, we are run by people who don't know what they're doing. Like, I, I feel like we would do a better job. It's just insane. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's... No, you're like, duh, of course we would do a better of job. Of course. Um... It's yeah. Well, it's just you can't you can't tell the same joke forever, right? And that that's that's where we're having trouble here. Is it's like you know what else new is there to say? I mean, yeah. we'll we'll go through what happened. So here's what. So Jim Jordan was named the speaker designate, and he was going to go to the. What, where do we want to? Well, start? I feel like first because it's been a long time. Oh right, how long right? was it? 
first Steve Scalise was named the speaker designate. Oh, yeah. Okay. He pulls his name out of the race. Um, so it was between Scalise and Jordan. Scalise pulls out and then reports come in that like Scalise supporters were kind of getting like strong armed by Jordan supporters behind the scenes. And he didn't want to have to deal with that. So he takes his name out. Jordan's the last one standing. So Jordan's the designee. Um, so then Jordan goes to the floor, right? They have multiple votes. The first vote, I think he had, there are 19 Republicans that vote against him. Uh, they're upset at how he treated Scalise. They're upset at the role that the Freedom Caucus in general, which Jim Jordan is one of the founding members of, um, treated Kevin McCarthy to oust him as speaker. Um, and they're not willing to to play ball to get a speaker. So these 19 Republicans, they don't vote for Jordan. The next day, I think it is, there's another vote for Jordan as speaker. Uh, I think then it's 22 Republicans that don't vote for him. So it's shown that he's losing members. Then a report comes out that he wants to support a, a new motion to give Patrick McHenry, who's the temporary speaker, more power so that they can run Congress without nominating someone before that can even happen, another report comes out that no, he wants to go for a vote again. So they have a third vote. There are 25 Republicans in the third vote that don't vote for Jordan. And it's like, you can tell that they're just trying to hammer the point home more to him. It's not going to happen. Right. Dude. It's not going to be you. Dude. Just give it up. It's not you. No. You're, you you look terrible. And and he looks terrible. Oh, terrible. I mean, he looks, like Jim Jordan coming to the head of maybe becoming Speaker of the House is the pro is the concluding act of a decade-long revolution in the Republican Party following the House Freedom Caucus boom of 2010, right? Mm -hmm. This is the moment. Jim Jordan becoming the Speaker of the House, that is when the House Freedom Caucus has finally taken over the Republican Party. Well, it didn't happen. No. It, it, it's... It, for that wing of the Republican Party, it's almost as if their general movement died with Jordan losing that speaker vote. Yeah. Because it kind of shows that, you know, no matter how close you can get to power and how close you can get to the gavel, you're not going to get it until you can play ball. Yeah. And, if, and these guys aren't the types to play ball. That's not their brand. That's not what they do. Mm -hmm. Right? And I would... I would argue there's a lot of pressure. This is even with a lot of pressure from the entirety of the Republican caucus mm -hmm. to choose a speaker. Right. right. And this is with Donald Trump endorsing Jim Jordan. Yeah. Right? So it's even with Donald Trump's backing. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump, whether you like it or not, is the leader of the Republican Party. If he can't even get the ducks in the Republican Party in order, who can? Yeah. I, so I when Jim Jordan goes to the floor and that third vote comes down, the Republicans that are against him kind of break down into three camps. You have the moderates who have genuine demands. These guys are mainly from New York and they're few and far between. They were asking to put the SALT uh, tax reduction uh, back in place, which would lower uh, federal taxes for people in New York, California. States with high state income taxes would see um, a reduction in their federal taxes. Mm -hmm. So- that's the first group, the moderates with genuine concerns. Then there's the people who want to punish Matt Gates. So this is like Don Bacon. Don Bacon from Nebraska doesn't want this to happen because he doesn't want the Gates and company to be rewarded for their bad behavior, mm -hmm. which is a very, that, that's like, you know, you create a moral hazard when yeah, you do something like that. Totally. You tell people, oh, if you want something, this is how you go and do it, yeah. right? We so, don't negotiate with terrorists. Right, exactly. Yeah. So then thirdly is the people who don't like Jordan's election denialism. 
Ken Buck is one of these people. Ken Buck specifically said that he doesn't like that Jordan wants to defund the Department of Justice because they're going after Trump. Um, one in, honestly, all three of them make sense to me. Uh, all three of those groups totally add up. I don't mm-hmm. really trust the guys, the moderates, saying that they want the salt reduction because that's a little skeezy. Oh, you, you, you'll vote for somebody who wants to defund the Department of Justice and stop ongoing investigations into a criminal to get a tax cut. I hate that. So that is what it is. Yeah. But this is where it's all coming down. Jim Jordan loses. And then they go into this other process of picking a new speaker. And eight people decide to run. I'm not going to list off all their names because they're irrelevant. The point is, the person who ends up winning this vote, well, you know what? I'll talk about two, okay? Tom Emmer, Byron Donalds, a three. Tom Emmer, Byron Donalds, Mike Johnson. So who's Tom Emmer? Tom Emmer is like the number three Republican in the House. He's a hardcore McCarthy ally, but he is not liked in the Trump world too much, especially by... uh, uh, Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon is pretty much the architect of the Donald Trump campaign. Um, and on his podcast called The War Room, he went off about Emmer, called Emmer McCarthy light, even suggesting that Emmer could be worse than McCarthy in a lot of ways. Mm. So Tom Emmer has issues from the right. And then we have uh, Republican Conference Vice Chairman Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson was fairly liked by the House Freedom Caucus. He works on the Judiciary Committee with Jim Jordan, very close ally to Jim Jordan. He is the natural successor to Jim Jordan, the Mike Johnson guy. Then there's Byron Donalds. Byron Donalds was nominated for Speaker during McCarthy's first run at it all those months ago. Um, He's a black congressman from Florida, a Republican, and he had a lot of House Freedom Caucus support as well. So... The way that these elections worked is they had eight people on their ballots, and they voted once, person with the least amount of votes, gone away. Now they have seven people on the ballot. They vote again, person at the bottom, done. Now they have six, blah, blah, blah. They did all of that voting today and ended with Tom Emmer as the speaker designate. But 26 Republicans have already said that they don't want to support Tom Emmer. It came down to Mike Johnson, Tom Emmer. And Mike Johnson bailed out before the last vote between Tom Emmer and Mike Johnson because mm. Johnson knew he wasn't going to get it. And 26 Republicans have already said, no, I'm not voting for Tom Emmer. Uh, uh, why did this happen? Why? Sir. Why did this happen? Oh, maybe it's because Donald Trump truthed something that totally blew up Tom Emmer's hopes and dreams. So uh, Donald Trump said, I have many wonderful friends wanting to be Speaker of the House, and some are truly great warriors. Rhino Tom Emmer, who I do not know well, is not one of them. He never respected the power of a Trump endorsement or the breadth and scope of MAGA. It just like, so now Ember's dead. It is such, like reading this, the, the, the strong man, like politicking of how Trump tweets or truths or whatever it is, right? Like he never respected the power of a Trump endorsement. Yeah. What does that mean? He, he really does everything he can constantly to make it that he is this party Mm -hmm. okay he and only he is this party and loyalty to him defines how right you are yes which is so messed up that it's such a it's such a terrible way to view politics yeah it's horrible i mean that's it's so funny because that's exactly what chairman xi has done in china so true right like that that is the only measure of how successful chinese politicians are it is just how loyal are they to xi um i you know what's interesting? Um, I I don't think I don't think any of these guys 
can be it. I don't know what happens next. Probably just more failure. I Donald is somewhat interesting to me because he's of extremely junior as a congressman. He's only served one full term in Congress. Um, he is super far right. His values, I think, do align with the the MAGA wing with oh, the Freedom yeah, Caucus. For sure. For sure. Um, I I think he wouldn't get. It's hard for me to believe he would get the votes because I think people would resent that he's a person who hasn't put in the time, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but on the other hand, I feel like he wouldn't get the he wouldn't have the problems that Jim Jordan does in that he's he's less aligned with the Freedom Caucus and he's not a leader of it, so it, people wouldn't resent him for ousting McCarthy as much. Yeah, people he probably hasn't been as active in. Um, in the backroom politicking, so maybe they're not upset at him for using pressure tactics that are really bothersome. I still don't think he could do it, but I wonder if by being less establishment, it could mean that people are like, you know what, we need a speaker. He hasn't messed up as much as these other people. Fuck it. Let's throw him in. Yeah, and I, and you know what else? He's a blank slate. And we always say blank slates are really rare and really good in politics. Yeah. And so he's a blank slate. I mm-hmm. feel like Byron Donalds kind of has... It's crazy that we're talking about this it's junior insane. congressman as someone who could be the third in line to the presidency. Yeah. Right? It's I mean, really it's, it's it's insane. He is no... Look, I don't want to badmouth the guy because I don't know him well, but it's just like, it's it's insane to me that somebody can get into the Congress, be in there for three years or whatever, yeah. and become Speaker of the House because of this tomfoolery. That's well, it, it's insane because it makes him into a leader and by being this junior of a congressman, he can't have had the leadership experience with the caucus mm-hmm. or the Congress to really be ready for it. Like right. you can't even imagine that he has. No, I, yeah. And look, I'm a big progressive. I love, I like AOC. Yeah. Is she ready to be Speaker of the House? No, Mm-mm. she isn't. And I could say that as someone who likes her, right? Yeah. So for people who support Byron Donalds, it's like, would they say the same? I don't know. Probably not. But like, I'm no. just. No, I, I mean, at this point, definitely not. Yeah, because right? now they've done everything else. They've yes. thrown everything else against the wall, and they're like, all right. Exactly. The one the one last point I'll make here with you bringing up AOC is when the Democrats have controlled the House, you've had Bernie, you've had Elizabeth Warren, the and Nancy Pelosi has been Speaker, right? They've never had this issue. They, there has never been this much fracturing within the Democratic Party. And the Bernies, the Warrens, and now the AOCs, they do have serious, significant differences with the almost what Democrats equivalent of the rhinos of their party yes. are, but they're able to govern enough that they can choose a speaker. Republicans, it seems, is clearly can't do that. Nancy Pelosi always said, unity is our strength, and this is why. Because mm-hmm. when, when you're not unified, you look like a bunch of clowns. And during, and you know, if you look at polling now, the Democratic Party as a whole has a larger approval rating than the Republican Party as a whole. Yeah. And this is why, you know? Yeah. It is a clown show. Like, Fox News is is clowning them because they're like, <laughs> I, how can they not get their shit together? It's right. ridiculous. I feel like the guys on Fox News are looking at it and they're like, I'm embarrassed to even be hyping you guys up. Yeah, totally. Okay. Moving on? Uh, Yes. You down to go to UAW? Hell yeah, I'm always down to talk about unions, baby. Yes. Um, this is one of the continuing storylines that is exciting. Even this morning, we had more updates here. So UAW strike rolls on. Um, Sean Fain has come out and said, uh, one one of the first headlines I saw here, that he's 
he's ready to unionize more of these workers. We've had discussions for each of the past few weeks about whether this union activity is going to give non-union automakers like Tesla, Toyota, Honda, um, is that going to give them an advantage, especially in the transition to EVs that we're about to be seeing in full swing? Well, Sean Fain, he's listening and he says, workers at Tesla, Toyota, Honda, and others are not the enemy. They're the UAW members of the future. Next, we're going to organize non-union auto companies like we've never organized before. God, I love that, dude. That gets me so hyped. Yeah. Oh, it gets me so hyped. Sean Fain, dude, what an awesome president you are of the UAW. This is amazing. Jim Cramer was absolutely right to fear you. You are one to be feared. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's fantastic. Um, But first, they have to finish the strikes on the big three. So Monday, so we're recording this on Tuesday, yesterday... It was announced that 6,800 more workers are starting to strike at one of Stellantis's most profitable plants, which is a Ram truck facility. Um, Sean Fain said this about that. He said that despite having the highest revenue, the highest profit margins, and the most cash in reserve, Stellantis lags behind both Ford and General Motors in addressing the demands of their UAW workforce. So that's why he's like, listen, we're out the door. So this plant is is not the only one that produces ram trucks they're also produced at a non-union facility in mexico and another uaw represented plant in warren michigan but the one that they walked out of produces the most trucks so get them should have a big effect i am curious this they have this non-union facility in mexico that makes them does that worry you at all we'll have to see how much that plant can upscale can can upscale to meet the you know, additional demand of it. Exactly. I, I just don't know. I don't think I'm not worried about this. Mm-hmm. I think I'm not worried about this. I trust the union has the strategy figured out. Mm-hmm. I trust that it's not going to end up in this spiral race to the bottom. Um, I think it's going to be all right. I really do. Because we're the only reason I'm saying this is because we're seeing progress. It's not like the companies are totally walking away from the table. Mm-hmm. They're not. So I want to go over where we're at with the negotiations. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So first thing is wages. So all three automakers have offered a 23% pay increase over four and a half years. Now, 23% is way lower than what we got when what they're asking for with that 36 to 40% number. Mm-hmm. But that 23% doesn't take into account the cost of living adjustments. So for the cost of living adjustments, Ford has offered to restore the formula that was used from 2009 Okay. Yes. To get rid of the tiered system. To get to get rid of the tiered system and to reverse the the uh, surrendering of the cost of living adjustments that were done in the wake of the financial crisis in two thousand eight. Okay. So in two thousand eight, the Ford Auto, the Ford GM Stellantis, the auto workers gave up their cost of living adjustments in order for the auto companies to get money from the federal government so that they can stay in business. Now the companies are profitable, record profits, record stock buybacks, record CEO pay. It's time you restore the cost of living adjustments we had before the great financial crisis. And so Ford and GM look like they're ready to restore completely, but Stellantis is lagging behind. And because Stellantis is lagging behind on this cost of living adjustment, that's why we saw the 6,800 workers walk out on the ramp plant. Yeah. Yes. I... I like, more and more, I'm just loving this strategy by the UAW leadership, right? Because they, by not having everyone strike at once, they have 
the most amount of leverage that they could, right? Because they can point to specific things that the auto companies are holding out on and say, because of this, another plant gone, Mm -hmm. right? And they can just keep doing that. Yeah, and it's perfect, this ramp up method, right? And you're able to quickly like, you know, move resources from one plant to another and you don't have to pay all the workers for the striking for striking and making sure that they keep their salaries whole. Mm -hmm. You can only target one specific area, target the most profitable plant, target the most popular car, hit the most important combustion engine part that is really important for dealers to replace, right? Yeah. Really hit them where it hurts. Another area of their negotiations that I really like a lot Mm. is their process on profit sharing. So Ford has offered to improve its profit sharing formula by including profits from Ford Credit, which is Ford's financial subsidiary, which is where it makes a lot of money. Interesting. So if that gets involved in the profit sharing for the employees, they're going to be seeing a lot more money in that. Okay. Stellantis and GM both want to maintain their current profit sharing formulas, but GM has offered to make the profit sharing system avail- available to temporary workers showing progress, while Stellantis has not shown any movement at all towards the issue. I see. So it's it's really interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. That is cool. The, the one other thing that happened this morning that is kind of supports this idea of the power of the the slow, not all at once strike. Um, GM this morning had a had an earnings call and they announced better than expected third quarter results with profits over three billion dollars. Less than four hours after that happened. Sean Fain comes out and he's like, oh, we're going to we're going to strike at your plant in Arlington, Texas. It builds some of GM's most highly profitable SUVs. um, And it it was great. He's like, yeah, this is a sign that you probably aren't realizing yet how important it is that you have your workers and that you can see to our demands. So we're just going to remove that bit of production. Wow. Um, GM, for what it's worth, it it is affecting them. And it's seen by the fact they had to withdraw their 2023 profit outlook and announce that they would slow their EV rollout plan in favor for profits. Oh, God. Yeah. So something that we've kind of feared, I think this is going to be worth it. Okay. I think. Um, I'm not sure, though. I. It's hard because we need to, the, the what we're struggling with is we need to transition to electric vehicles. We have to make the leap. We mm-hmm. talked about how important it is, especially for the United States. That I don't remember the number offhand. Maybe you do. What percentage of our emissions come from cars? Do you remember? Thirty-seven percent. Thirty-seven percent of our emissions are coming from cars. If we can get that out, that's so much progress so fast. And we yeah. need to be able to start producing that stuff now so we can increase the economies of scale and get these things pumping out. Mm-hmm. So having this delayed by yet another year or two, it just hurts to see. And you don't want non-union companies like Tesla and Honda and Toyota to get the advantage mm-hmm. in the EV market. We want unionization to be there and the union workforce building the EVs of the future. But is the strike just delaying the EV transition of these companies? I think it's going to be okay because I think the back and forth with the union and with, I think they're going to negotiate in a way that they, they get what they want and uh, the companies are going to realize that their 
slowing supply of EVs will do nothing to the rising demand mm. in the country. Right. True. And I think they're going like even there's they're saying in the short term we're gonna slow this down. Specifically, it was like we aren't going to invest in 2023 because they don't want those costs on their 2023 books, mm. right? So it, it's like it's all financial stuff. Oh, I think oh, the actual might... production is just going to it's going to be fine. Oh, I see what you mean. Like they're going to be like they're just going to wait to quarter one 2024 instead of quarter four 2023. Exactly. Oh, okay, that's totally different. That yeah. makes me feel way better about it. No, they're still gonna yeah they're still gonna be doing it. They still know they need to do it. Right. Right. I right. Mean, so it is going to be the fastest growing market in the United States, right? That's yeah. going to, it's going to be huge in mm-hmm. the next five years. So yeah, it's it's just not in their interest. But UAW making progress. They're yeah. also they've also won like two weeks of paternal or uh, of uh, parental leave. Oh, which is sick. That is awesome. That's already won. That's under that. that every company has agreed to that. So huge. just awesome progress. So next current event I want to jump to is the new semiconductor regulations, the semiconductor export regulations that the U.S. is putting on American companies to prevent them from sending the most advanced chips that we design to China. Um, So we've talked, we did a deep dive about the chip war between the U.S. and China. Please, you should go check it out. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, So good. And in October, October 7th, 2022, about a year ago now, the U.S. put sweeping restrictions on the exports of certain U.S. technology to design, manufacture, um, and the chips that we make here, and that we can't export any of that kind of stuff to China because we know how important AI specifically is going to be in military applications moving forward. And these chips are what are used to train those AI models. We don't want to let that get into China's hands, especially if it could use that kind of technology to win an invasion of Taiwan. Right. So the problem is, even though we had some pretty sweeping restrictions, there were still loopholes and people have been pointing out those loopholes. So about four days ago or a week ago now, um, there was an update to our restrictions to close some of those loopholes. Okay. Do you want to go through this or should I start going through this? No, I'll go through a little bit of it. Okay. So the issue is the U.S. companies still have an incentive to sell to China because they're profit-driven companies, right? Mm-hmm. Their loyalty isn't – these companies who make these chips, their loyalty isn't to America. Their, loyal, their loyalty isn't to the citizens of the country. Their loyalty isn't to the people who paid the tax money in order for them to do their research. Mm-hmm. And the loyalty isn't to the – where their institutions, their intellectual institutions, the universities that gave them all the research that they were needed to make their commercialized products, they don't have any loyalties to any of that. Their loyalty is to the dollar. And because of that, they're looking at China and seeing a buttload of consumers. And they're like, oh, man, we got to get we we need to do everything we can to get around these U.S. regulations because it's stopping, it's stifling our our profits. And you know, you have these chip companies going in and they're trying to lobby the United States to ease these restrictions. They've spent so much on lobbying. And it's insane. It, 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 spend the lobbying on making more chips. Like, don't waste your money because yeah. we're not going to budge on this, nor should we. Mm-hmm. So now China, uh, the United States is now requiring chip makers to obtain licenses to ship to dozens of other countries, not just China. So what was happening was 
chips, let's say chips were going into Vietnam. I don't know if Vietnam is one of the 12, but say chips are going to Vietnam. Those chips in Vietnam are then getting rerouted to China out of a Vietnamese company. Mm -hmm. And Vietnam doesn't have the same regulational requirement as it does to the United States, right? So now the United States is going to make chip companies get licensing for even those countries that they see as targets for possible Chinese smuggling. Yeah, yeah. And the the default position on these applications for a license is being declined, um, especially for the highest end chips. So there is a little bit of, there. there's a difference here where there are certain thresholds that are kind of more of a dark or like a black area where these chips you need a licensing application and they will almost certainly be denied. And then there's chips that are more in a gray area that it's like, okay, these have a little bit more leeway. If they're within certain lower thresholds, then they're more likely to have the licenses accepted. Right. Um, so what, I want to give a little explanation on like what the chip differential is, because we talk about it a lot in the deep dive, but a lot of people probably don't know that a semiconductor and a microchip is the way that we talk about effectiveness and a quality chip is how close each transistor is to each other on the chip itself. And what we've been able to do is create this massive, impressive technology that can put transistors within 1.5 nanometers in between each other. And so that's like the most high-end chip in the world. So the United States is really regulating that 3 nanometer difference to that 1.5 nanometer difference. That's what we're really regulating. We're not really regulating the 10 nanometer to 5 nanometer. That's not really where we're concerned about. It's like mm -hmm. it's that sub-5, sub-3 level that we're concerned about. Yeah. Exactly. Because that that's what has the high computational power. Yeah. Um, now, after our initial restrictions came out, NVIDIA specifically came out with a chip that was able to do very close to the performance of the band chips. Um, and it was able to do that because we had two threshold um, or two, two variables that we put thresholds on to say that chips couldn't be exported. Okay. And they were a bandwidth requirement and a performance speed requirement. So bandwidth is how fast chips can talk to each other, whereas performance speed is how fast the singular chip works on its own. Because of that, right, we um, the chips, the the chips that the the new chip that NVIDIA made would have would still be really fast on its own and just be just under that bandwidth requirement. So it was still very useful for companies, especially in AI applications. What we've done now is removed that bandwidth, um, that bandwidth threshold. So it's just based on performance speed and there's no way around this. We even added another requirement called a performance density threshold because a potential workaround would be getting a bunch of these chips that are just under our performance speed threshold and wiring them together yeah. so that together in network, they can get up to really high performances. This performance density threshold means that's not allowed either. So really there is no way that an NVIDIA, an AMD or an Intel can put out a new chip that still is within the restriction thresholds that have been announced and really have a similar type of computing power as the highest end chips. That's so interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. It's crazy the length that these companies are going to to try to get their products in that market. Yeah. 
you know? Profit motive, man. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. We always say, like, when the profit motive is not aligned to socially good behavior, it is the most dangerous. Yeah. It is the most dangerous thing in the world. <laughs> that is when you need government intervention. Yeah. That is the point. Um, yeah. So the question now is, is what happens with, with Chinese-American um, relations? And obviously, the Chinese didn't like this. No. Um, no, they did not. We've been normalizing a little bit with China recently. Things have been cooling off as we've had several American envoys go there right for for conversations mm-hmm. um we but, have a meeting with them next month in california oh we have a big uh, asian summit in california where it looks like she is going to be attending which is going to be big and meeting with biden meeting with biden right which is going to be huge yeah as long as they don't blow it up and long as long as the world doesn't blow up by then which we'll talk about <laughs> um but now we're thinking like is could this chip strategy backfire mm-hmm. are we pushing the chinese to now create that technology that much faster than what they would have so there was an example of this recently huawei 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 released a new phone and it is to date the best chip that china has yet produced Mm -hmm. u.s analysts um, are a little conflicted on what this means some people say oh man this means china is increasing their production capacity and they're they're improving Um, But other U.S. analysts have suggested that the achievement still most likely hinges on American technology and machinery that they got go in violation of the U.S. trade restrictions. I think either in violation or that they hoarded before the restrictions went in. Yeah, it's either they had it in their vault ready to go Mm -hmm. or they got it through a violation of the restriction. If it's in their vault... Um, I'm not worried about it because these machines break and they need to be serviced and nobody is going to come and service them in China. It's not going to happen. So I'm not really worried about that if it's in their vault because it'll run out eventually. I am worried if they're getting rid of the train restrictions to get the machinery. Yeah. Yes. I I agree. But I think these new restrictions then would help with that a lot. Yes. These new restrictions are going to help a lot. Mm -hmm. Help a lot. Um, uh, Tech Insights, which is a Canadian firm that analyzes everything that has to do with semiconductors, um, they concluded that the advanced chip uh, was manufactured by uh, Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corporation of China. So this is the state-owned company, the SMIC, um, that they say they were operating beyond the technology limits that the United States has been trying to enforce. Yeah. So this is nerve-wracking because, again, either they hoarded it or they got it through a trade restriction or they built it themselves. But, again, U.S. analysts say they didn't probably build them themselves. It's probably U.S. machinery. Yeah. Right. It was it was a big deal. Like, when, when the phone hit the market, people were like, oh, we, this is way better than we expected they would be able to do. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, props to the Chinese for being able to get around that. I, I It is impressive, but I don't think it will be able to continue unabated yeah yeah but now this is when it gets tricky now because are nvidia amd and intel going to go back to the biden administration and say hey look hey look they have this eight out of ten chip can we sell our eight out of ten chips too now like oh look china already has this good chip Mm. can we sell them our like that level good chips too yeah right and then every implement that china does that gets higher and higher these companies are going to keep coming back to the Biden administration saying, oh, look, they already have it anyway. It's not like we're giving it to them. I suppose. But I, I think I'm, I honestly trust in the competence of the Biden administration. Um, mm-hmm. 
And they have leverage over these companies because yep. of the incentives they've put out in the Chips and Science Act. True. Right? They've already signed up on board. They've planned to get all this money to put these new fabs here. And we've talked about when we did that deep dive, the um, how part of the, the legislation includes the ability for the government to claw back that money if it's not used for the purposes set out in the applications. That's totally true. And so, the companies do not want to be paying back the federal government after these taking these subsidies out. Absolutely no, not. Totally. But now, Ben, yeah. China is responding and pretty aggressively. Yeah, the response um, was quick. And I think that the timeliness as far as what we've been putting out recently is kind of hilarious because... We just did a deep dive on our last episode about the transition to electric vehicles. We talked all about how China really dominates the supply chain all the way up and down it for for that process. A big part of it, including the mining, processing, and refining of some of the most important metals that go into EV batteries. One of those metals is graphite, Okay. China produces 65% of the world's graphite and refines more than 90% of it. Oh, no. Okay. And in response to these new chip restrictions, China has restricted its graphite exports. Now, graphite is vital to the production of electric vehicles. It is used in almost all EV battery anodes. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is, this is essential. And we're talking about the country has 90% of the world's refining capacity. Yeah. The refining capacity is the one thing I'm I'm concerned about. Uh, but that's the thing that can be created elsewhere, right? Yes, but it'll take time. Yeah, it I takes think. time. It takes time. Um, I don't. I don't. I wasn't able to find like where else refining is really done. It is so dominated by China. Um, I think, but though in the immediate future, kind of just like China found ways around our chips restrictions, I think will I think will act quickly, and our auto manufacturers will act quickly to make sure this isn't crippling to yeah. them, right? In the immediate future, I think there's going to be a spike in buying before the Chinese restrictions go into effect. And then you're going to see existing producers spike in production, startup producers of graphite, producers and refiners in other countries. Um, we're going to see more investment and they're going to be able to hopefully ramp up, scale up. Um, I think it's not going to be crippling. It might be slowing mm -hmm. things down. Um, but what we saw with china restricting exports of these other materials a few months ago germanium and gallium um, which was kind of a delayed response to the first chip restrictions that we put on them uh what happened was it first their exports went down to almost nothing yeah and then as they decided oh we want the income from these natural resources they gave out more and more licenses so it wasn't as much of a problem and people had access to them I expect something really similar to happen here. Like, because we saw a massive decrease in Chinese exports over the last year. That's another one of the themes that we've had on the show. Yeah. We were we were covering very frequently the export and import levels of China, of Chinese economy, and it's been really bad for China. Uh, you know, you can see the decoupling in the United States, which was our their biggest trading partner, and so now, you know, if you're going to cut your exports again, are all of your Chinese companies going to be able to gobble up all this refined graphite? I don't think so. Mm -mm. And so this is going to be sitting on a lot of graphite that now needs to be put somewhere in order to make back the money that was invested to refine it. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how long that can hold. 
it kind of reminds me of the Russia situation where Russia restricted its petroleum exports for a while, did it for like two weeks, it crippled their economy, and then they lifted the restriction like two days later. Yeah. You know? And so it kind of strikes me like that. I feel like it's a little easier for the United States because our economy isn't relying on it, right? Sure. Where if China, this could this could hit them harder. I think it could. For what it's worth, they do have extremely high graphite demands in their own country. Mm. Like we talked about last week, China's EV industry is more advanced by far than any other country in the world. Yeah. And it's growing faster than any other country. So it does have a lot of batteries to make itself, um, but it still will be in its interest to mine and ship out more graphite. So mm-hmm. hopefully not the end of the world in the near term. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about one more thing in China, which is interesting to me. Uh, an article came out yesterday that China is cracking down on Foxconn, which is the maker of the iPhone, uh, because its CEO just announced a bid to run for president in Taiwan. So this is just a perfect example of Chinese communism, socialism, whatever you want to call it. Um, It's strict government intervention into industry to make political statements if these companies do anything. These companies or even the countries that that are affiliated with them do anything that China doesn't like, that the CCP doesn't like. They did this with Micron in response to some American tensions that happened a while back. Um, so what's been reported is that China, that the CCP is doing tax audits and a land use investigation into Foxconn. Um, I've seen people that I trust say this is the beginning of the end for all of apple's assets in china wow yeah like they're gonna crack down and apple is going to lose all of that investment um that's huge yeah which i i i'm not even that surprised about i didn't i don't know how fast it'll happen and i know apple has been putting some new factories in india in preparation for things a lot apple has moved a lot to india a lot to vietnam yeah yeah but Tim Cook just went and visited, I think, with Xi himself mm. two weeks ago. Because just like Elon visited Xi a while back, because they're trying to make sure that everything is fine, that they're like, okay, I know these tensions are rising with America, but we want to make sure we're still chill, right? We're, we're, we don't have a problem with the things you're doing here. We want to keep doing business here. Xi uh, doesn't care. No. No. He doesn't care at all. So... Yeah, I think I think these companies are highly at risk and underestimating it. Absolutely underestimating it. And we talked about this before um, in relation to the Chilean uh, coup with Pinochet. We've talked about this in relation to other nationalization schemes. When a company does, when a when a country decides to nationalize an industry, and we talked about this in relation to Ukraine, when a country decides to nationalize an industry, it is a signal to all other foreign entities in that country that their assets are no longer safe and they need to get out Mm -hmm. and when that happens and your country isn't ready for it and your country doesn't have the internal capital to deal with that you're in a lot of trouble Mm -hmm. because now you just lost a lot of your foreign direct investment and so china is having a growing economy that is becoming more and more self-sufficient but that does not mean they're in a position to see all of these foreign companies totally pull out Mm-mm. They're not ready for that. Um, 
them going in and what you're suggesting is that they're going to try to take over all of Apple's assets. Yeah. It's pretty insane. I can kind of see that. I mean, that's they pretty might insane. not. Like with Micron, they kind of they kind of got close. It looked like they were going to kick them out of the country and take over, mm-hmm. and then they backed off. Okay. So maybe we see something like that again. Okay. Maybe they're just trying to kind of spread their peacock feathers and show we are the big stick around here. And if if you run for president in this island nation that we say isn't an island nation, mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna punish your company. Uh, I almost want China to do it. Yeah. I kind of want them to. Yeah. I want them to dare. I want the. I want corporations to see that their investments aren't safe over there. Yeah. I mean, we've already talked about also how much investment in China has declined because of this kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I want, I want that to be right. Right. I want the, I want that part of the calculation for these companies to be like, not, oh, they're just going to bluster and make themselves seem scary. Um, but we can invest there anyway. We'll be fine. Right. Yeah. Right. All right, everybody. So you can't make this shit up. Uh, while we took a little bathroom break in our recording session, Tom Emmer dropped out of the speaker. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have to say, I can't believe it. My reaction is this is this is just it's we're just gonna see exactly the same thing that we just saw. Yeah. Okay. It it is Scalise and Jordan over again. Yeah. Right. So Emmer's the McCarthy aligned guy, and he won the designate vote behind the scenes and now he's like oh all these people said they're not going to vote for me so he withdrew his name hoping that it's going to be able to unite the party it won't because it's probably alienated even more republicans who are like so he's done everything right uh and i don't know i feel like whether maybe maybe it'll be mike johnson maybe mike johnson maybe, maybe it's mike johnson yeah. but listen this is the point gop you got two options either you would nominate and elect a hard right speaker of the house like jim jordan okay that's your first option Second option is you work with Democrats. Those are your only two options. For the sake of everyone in the fucking country, just pick one. There is no plan C. Yeah. No matter how many conversations you ha- you have at the bar after work, you're not going to come up with a plan C. There isn't one. Mm-mm. Please, just pick A or B. If you want to go with a hard right guy at the speaker's race, face the consequences in the election of 2024. Okay? If yeah. you don't want to work with Democrats that bad, face it. Yeah, I mean, the, it's going to be facing the music if they work with Democrats too, though. So yeah, I get how hard it is, is but you have it, to do it. Will it though? Will independents look at Republicans siding with Democrats and be like, not vote for them because of that? No, but... You think it'll depress the base with yeah. Trump at the top? of I just don't see it. I don't think it's a bad political move to mm. work with the Democrats for this. I really don't. Okay. Okay, maybe no, not. I don't, because maybe Trump's they're going to be at the top of the ticket. Maybe they're just worried they're going to get primary, though, because the Republicans That's, do that. That is way more accurate. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, just just don't care about being elected so much. Yeah, for I once. know. Please, just do what point. matters. Just do what's important. Okay. Right. Um, so now I want to talk about the Argentina election, because yeah. this has been just so funny. Uh, so we have Javier. Well, let's start. Okay. The election was two days ago, October 22nd. <laughs> They are they we had three big candidates coming into the first round of the election. We had the primary a few a few weeks ago, and during the primary, Javier Malay came in first place, defying all the polls. 
Javier Millet is this anarcho-capitalist, libertarian economist guy, and his big policy is dropping the Argentina peso entirely and dollarizing the entire economy. Um, he also wants to take a chainsaw to a bunch of regulations, cut like 60% of the departments in the Argentinian government, and he also wants to completely restrict abortion. Um, it's pretty insane that he got, that he is getting this much momentum, um, especially over the dollarizing of the economy thing. You know, economic experts are kind of yeah, debating what this would do, but economic experts have debated um, if it's even possible, let alone what it will do. Um, some say, some people say that the country doesn't even have enough assets um, because the only way to dollarize an economy is to exchange all local currency for U.S. dollars, dollars at a fixed exchange rate. Um, and allow citizens to, when they deposit money into a bank, to get back dollars when they take it out. Well, if your country doesn't have the money to buy all the dollars at that fixed exchange rate, then you can't do it. And that, that you just—they're in, in such a debt spiraling hole mm -hmm. that that's where this comes from. Um, his major opponent was the economy minister. Is the economy minister? Uh, Segiro Massa. Now, he is in the current government. He is in the current ruling government of Argentina, which has a lot of problems. It's a Peronist government. Um, it's on. The, it's of the left, center left to just left generally, not far left, but center left left. Um, and this is about, he's about government programs, government expansion, unionism, all that stuff. Um, he's the economy minister of the current government. Then we had Patricia Bullrich. Now, she was the center-right candidate. So Malay is this far-right guy. Um, Bullrich is the center-right. Now, she really ran a campaign being tough on crime, kind of copying what we saw and what we see in El Salvador. El Salvador has run a very successful tough on crime campaign over there. So why is this election so important? Well, it's so important because Argentina is in an economic spiral right now. We think inflation in America is bad. Well, the year-over-year -year inflation in Argentina is 138%. <laughs> Just can you fathom that? I It is hard for me to fathom. It, I, I can't. No. The things that I go to the store are literally double in price. More than double. More than double yeah. in price. I can't fathom <laughs> something like that. No. And this is the most out of the G20 nations. So that's the G20 is the top 20 economies in the world. Yeah. Number two is Turkey at 61%. And then number three is UK at 6.7. Wow. What is happening in Turkey? That's another day, I guess. <laughs> that's, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Turkey, this has been going on in Turkey for like three years. Okay. <laughs> um, but now this is causing interest rates to rise. So interest rates have just gone from 75% in Argentina to 133%. Now, imagine that. We're talking about interest rates rising by 25 basis points, right? This is 25,000 basis points or something like that, right? That's crazy. That's insane. That's what we're seeing right now, 75 to 133% today. Um, the only place that has larger interest rates in the world is Zimbabwe. And Zimbabwe is a whole other thing that we could talk about. <laughs> um, so right now, it is $1 equals 359 Argentinian pesos. In 2019, it was $1 for 50. Ooh. Oh my God. It has lost seven times its value. Unbelievable. Unimaginable. But this is only the official rate. On the black market, $1 goes for 900 Argentinian pesos. 
Holy shit. The official rate is the 349, but no actual citizen has access to the official rate. Only wow. the government does. So the average citizen is paying $900 for $1. Holy cow. And this is most of the exchanges in the country now are being done with dollars. People are doing this black market dealings to get the dollars. Wow. So now a lot of transactions aren't even being done on the books, decreasing tax revenue. It's holy cow. It's a crazy spiral wow. that Argentina is finding itself in. And so Malay is riding this into power here. Well, riding it um, into political momentum, at least. Um, but two days ago, October 22nd, we had the first round of the election. And Sergio Massa ended up winning the first round, earning about 37% of the vote. Okay. Malay got about 30% of the vote and Bullrich got like 24 or something like that. So now we'll go into the second round where it's only going to be between uh, Massa and Malay. And we'll see how that turns out. It looks like Malay did a little worse than what people thought. Mm. People thought Malay actually had a chance of coming in first in the first round. And people are shocked by how well Massa did. Mm. Because this 130% inflation rate happened under his party's watch. He wasn't the economy minister for the majority of this current presidential run. Um, this current presidential administration, but he is the economy minister now. Yeah. And this is happening under his watch, technically. So he is definitely further right than most other Peronists, most other center-left party members. Um, no doubt about that. But it is interesting that the people of Argentina still trust the people currently in power than handing it over to Malay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about where the Bullrich voters will go. That's right? what it's really all about. Consider These center-right people. Yeah. Are they going to go? Are they going to, you know, do a Hail Mary to Malay or stick with the establishment and stick with Masa? Ooh, ooh. That seems, it seems very 2016 American, very. right? Very. Yeah. Like very. how badly do they just want anything to shake up the system? Exactly. And so the for the congressional elections, it looks like the uh, Peronist candidates, the center left guys will hold on to the Senate. But for their lower chamber, it is going to be a coalition between Malay's party and Bullrich leading the low chamber of Congress, like our House of Representatives. Yeah. So, bam, Argentina election, crazy stuff. And then when the second round comes through, we'll talk about that. But people are not happy. I already see people online saying, oh, the election was stolen. Malay didn't actually lose. How could how could they elect Massa again after him being the economy minister with all this bad inflation? They're already starting the conspiracy theories, man. Of course. Just right out of Trump's playbook, dude. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Let's move over to Biden on Venezuela. Yeah. I want to sure. end with a defense budget thing. Okay. So what's going on in Venezuela? Yeah. So a few days ago, the Biden administration loosened some of American sanctions on Venezuelan oil exports. Um, so this is a really big deal. The U.S. has imposed sanctions on Venezuela for a while um, because in 2008, then-President Hugo Chavez had expropriated oil assets. It's what we're talking about, man. Yeah, of, of companies like ExxonMobil, uh, and we wanted to punish them for being less neoliberal than we are okay with. Mm -hmm. uh, and now... Um, later, when Trump came into office, he tightened the screws even harder um, because he wanted to cripple the economy so deeply that the government would collapse. Was this before or after Venezuela kind of was taken over by 
socialist authoritarianism after so after so hugo chavez became president around 2008 maybe Mm -hmm. 2006 so that's when they elect the socialist party okay then they start expropriating exxon mobile assets we put in the sanctions maduro takes over after after chavez okay maduro starts doing undemocratic elections elections blah 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 you know Yeah, yeah yeah and then now we're here okay um and because so because of this expropriation Venezuela has lost a lot of the brains behind oil drilling. Totally. And now Venezuela is pumping less oil than it did in the early 2000s. This is because they don't have the tools and the wherewithal to repair the machinery when it goes down or to upgrade it at all. Um, So they're kind of stuck in the past, and it's really, really bad for the international oil market especially when fuel prices are going up, like we saw in the last CPI report, we want this oil on the market. We want them able to produce more. Um, with the United States sanctioning them and crippling their uh, their export capabilities, it's hurting a lot of people. It's hurting everyone. It's really hurting the Venezuelans a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is why we have an influx of hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans into the U.S. from the southern border right now. This is exactly why. This is what's causing our border crisis. Um, And when when Republicans talk about the border crisis, you never hear this mentioned. Of course not. Um, But the reason that Biden is now lifting these sanctions is because Maduro has made a promise that he's going to hold a free and fair internationally monitored election. And this is exactly how we like to see the U.S. doing foreign policy. Hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. This is a fantastic trade. Mm -hmm. We want you involved in the global economy. We'll let you be involved, but make sure that your people have fair representation and let them have a right to vote. Totally. And we're going to oversee that, and the U.N.'s going to oversee it. Mm -hmm. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. Um, Obviously, I'm not going to be the one to sit here and trust Maduro on his word. We'll see what happens. Um, But... These sanctions will be back in place in six months' time. So this will happen. So if Maduro doesn't stay true to his word, the United States is already prepared to reverse the sanctions, to reimpose the sanctions immediately, Yeah, which is really good. That's exactly how it should be. We shouldn't punish bad behavior, but we need to reward good behavior. Totally. Totally. We have to reward good behavior. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, how we, that's how we get countries into our sphere good actors into our sphere yeah and we don't want venezuela in china's sphere we don't want that no. if, if we can avoid that we would very happily avoid that mm-hmm. if we if we could you know integrate our economies more with venezuela because it's not like venezuela has terrorist organizations that want to destroy the united states that, that that's not happening mm-hmm. right it's not like that it's it, it it's it's just not similar um but so now let's talk about the political repercussions yeah where are republicans on this well republicans are not happy about it shocker uh, Lisa Murkowski has one thing to say, which her opinion is a little more understanding because of where she comes from. She uh, is the senator from Alaska, and she wants more oil production to come from Alaska. And she's upset because this is going to undercut Alaskan developments. Mm-hmm. That that makes sense because now the oil that is going to be that was going to be produced in Alaska, the demand is now could possibly be met by the oil coming in from Venezuela, right? So that's fine. I understand that concern. I don't agree with it, but that's fine. That makes sense. Um, then we have another person. Uh, we have the ranking Republican on the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Um, he said that America should never beg for oil from socialist dictators or terrorists. Well, 
Um, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Well, yeah, Maduro, it's kind of hilarious. Maduro isn't a terrorist. Uh, we're the, not begging for their oil uh, at all. No, we're not even gonna. We're not even gonna necessarily buy their oil. No. We're just putting their oil on the market. It's not like we're necessarily buying it. Exactly. It's this was. It's kind of hilarious for me to read because it's it's so. This person is making a political statement, and it means absolutely nothing. <laughs> like it's so obvious. It's so transparent. It's so stupid. Like who buys this shit, dude? Yeah. Who is buying this? Yeah. Who sits there and's like, oh yeah, Maduro dictator terrorist i don't want to buy their oil joe biden <laughs> no no it's it's the person who doesn't even go like a single layer deeper to see what's going on yeah so democrats have kind of mixed feelings mm. um florida democrats are hopeful that this move could bring democracy back to the country um venezuela as ben just mentioned we've seen a lot of immigrants come from venezuela over the last few years because of the massive sanctions imposed by the united states um, and some failures of their socialist fiscal policy. Um, so with these Venezuelan voters being in Florida now, some Democrats are hopeful that if Joe Biden is the one to restore Venezuelan democracy, that could really help the Venezuelan voting bloc. Yeah. On the other hand, if Joe Biden looks like he's just an appeaser of Maduro, that's going to hurt the Venezuelan voter bloc. So it's kind of difficult, but I, I think I would go with the former. I think if Joe Biden's able to say, we got free elections in Venezuela, that's going to go pretty far. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're you're converting an authoritarian government to a democratic one. Like, that's fantastic. Um, I, I think another side benefit here is the hope that you help stabilize Venezuela enough politically and economically that we can ease up with our border crisis a little bit True. right yeah if we have a six if we have a successful venezuela that makes our border problem way easier yeah i mean the more the more we are able to foster good relations and positive economies in um central and south america like the better it is for us yeah we have so many interests there uh and this is as if we can do it in a way that we're encouraging democracy it's great yeah. And you know what, if we like, this is something I say a lot with regards to the border. After World War II, every, you know, Western Europe was destroyed. And in response, the United States passed the Marshall Plan, which gave a lot of money out to, you know, these destroyed countries and gave them the capital to build back up. Well, the truth is Latin America needs capital to get built back up. And the, the return on investment for every dollar the United States spends in a place like Nicaragua, Honduras, or Venezuela goes a lot further than it does trying to secure the southern border. Mm -hmm. It goes a lot further. It reduces the number of migrants significantly if you can stabilize that country yeah. rather than just, you know, try to stop them before they get in here. Totally. Absolutely. Um, let, the last thing I'll say about the Venezuelan oil thing is Biden is also trying to position this as an anti-Iranian position. Because as we'll talk about right now, the United States and Iran are really staring at each other pretty close to the face. And Biden is hoping that with more Venezuelan oil on the market, this could weaken Iran's position. Because Iran is currently making a lot of money um, off their oil exports. You gotta say Iran. Iran. <laughs> you gotta? <laughs> Sorry, I just... Um, no, but, but as far as this point... Uh, I, I don't think it's going to do much. Yeah, me either. Yeah. Um, because, again, we just said Venezuela has a weak production capacity. Yeah. So I, d I don't really buy that from the Biden administration. No. I just think that's a... 
he, that's just him trying to sound tough on Iran. Yeah, and and it'll take time for them to build up capacity, and they just don't. They just don't have the. I mean, it's it's the production capacity. It's just the oil fields. Like they don't have the resources yep. to to compete with these other massive oil exporters. So absolutely not. Yeah. All right. Last current event. We have Joe Biden asking for $106 billion to aid Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and the southern border. This is a huge deal. Big ask. This is like, this is the big moment of the new allies versus the new axis right now. That's yeah. what this is. That yeah. This is what we're staring in the face. Mm-hmm. We have Iran versus Israel through the proxies of Hamas mm-hmm. and Hezbollah. We have uh, Russia versus Ukraine, which is the proxy of NATO versus Russia, right? And then we ha- now have the China-Taiwan situation. Mm-hmm. And this is going to try to fund all of those problems and prop up a new ally defense against all of these different axes of attack. Mm-hmm. It's going to be insane. So if it works. If it works. Yeah. So now let's go through what he's trying to do here. So first, what he wants to give to Israel. He wants to fund the Iron Dome. He wants to refill all the stocks that they just expended fighting back against the Hamas missile barrages. He wants to replenish stocks drained by aid to Israel. So all the guns, missiles, artillery, weaponry, vehicles that we've given to Israel, we want to reproduce them to keep up where we were currently at before we gave them to Israel. Mm -hmm. And we want to strengthen Israeli military and embassy security. This one is uh, uh, obvious. Uh, I think now the embassy needs to be super secure over there because we don't want a Benghazi 2.0. Exactly. It doesn't take much analysis here. Um, The largest portion is not actually the Israel portion. No. The largest portion is the Ukraine portion. This is $60 billion. Well, Ukraine needs it a lot. No, of course. Ukraine needs it a lot more. Yeah. Um, we give Israel $3.8 billion every single year forever. Okay. Yeah. They they have a lot. Um, Israel has fought multiple wars by themselves and have been very successful. They fought, and we'll talk about this, but they fought the war of 1968, something Seven. like that. Seven. 1967. 1967. Yeah. They fought the war of 1973 alone, and they did a fantastic job with U.S. military support on, uh, you know, on the outside. Yeah. So they could do it again. They're just highly advanced, like technologically. They these, uh, I mean, we'll we'll get into it. Yeah. yeah. So then we have 60 billion dollars going to Ukraine. Um, defend Ukraine against Russian aggression. Keep giving small arms and replenishing stocks from it. This is all about artillery shells, um, and weapons and bullets. Increase U.S. troop presence in Europe. This is pretty intense. That's pretty intense. I want to put our... This is more troops going into Poland, more troops going into Estonia, more guys going into Romania. I think I support it. I think I think it's a good deterrent. Yeah. I mean, I just... I don't know... I mean, I'm not, I'm not all too sure Russia's going to go further here. I'm not too sure, but I... I'm... I'm probably more than 50% that they want to go further. No, that's fair. Yeah. Especially, especially into Poland. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. Um, He is asking for critical economic and civilian security assistance, um, direct budget support to help Ukraine. Um, I talked about this last week. I don't like that Ukraine can't provide a full audit of our financial assistance. Yeah. I don't like that. 
I want to be able to know where the money's going. Mm -hmm. And as of right now, we don't have that capacity. They, they are not able to track where everything's going. And that's an issue for me. Mm -hmm. I am fully in support of Ukraine defending itself, but they need to do a better job auditing. Now, I know that Biden administration is working to make an audit department in Ukraine to keep track of all this money. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. How do you feel about it? I, I just I think you're right. I think it, this should come with the condition of audits. Yeah. Of some kind of regular audits. Right. Because um, corruption does just destroy. The, the point isn't just to send money. The point is to use the money. Right. right. So. And also to uphold Western support. Right. If we send you this money and then the corruption gets exposed, mm -hmm. we're not going to give you any more money. Yeah. And right. neither are our allies. And then it's over. And then it's over. And it's over. The next thing um, is humanitarian aid for Gaza. That's really good. I'm really glad that's in there. Yeah. Um, the people of Gaza definitely need humanitarian aid. Uh, what we've sent so far is not enough. No, I think I, we can wait on that for the deep yeah. dive. Yeah. Yeah. So then Indo-Pacific, just about giving money to Taiwan, getting U.S. commitments to the Australian, the United Kingdom, U.S. agreement. Um, that's like our kind of Anglosphere alliance that mm -hmm. we have going on. Um, is it is it just Taiwan or is it like Philippines, Vietnam? Because I know the <coughs> Philippines specifically. One, China has been encroaching with the Coast Guard, um, and uh, they're they're yeah. scared and want to look like they're more aligned with the U.S. Actually, I don't know if it's just giving weapons to Taiwan. I know that in the region we're transitioning allies off Russian military equipment onto U.S. grade equipment, mm. and I think that that is pretty. Tied, I think that's Vietnam, right? Because Vietnam okay. has a lot of Russian weapon stores, and we're going to try to transition them off of that and onto U.S. model weaponry. Okay. Um, if you find anything on the Taiwan thing, interrupt me. Yeah. So the next thing is to combat the Belt and Road Initiative, which I think is amazing. So China has been in a position to really fund low-income and developing countries in a way that the United States really hasn't done over the last two decades. We haven't been interested in it. Um, but now, and it's, it's bought the Chinese a lot of goodwill throughout Africa, which helps them when going to the United Nations with things. So the United States is going to support the mobilization of 200 billion new dollars of new financing for developing countries backed by our partners and allies. This is showing that United States is caring about the developing world, that we are a partner of the developing world, that we're going to help them develop, that they can choose the American model. They don't have to choose the Chinese model. Yeah. You don't have to be in the Chinese sphere of influence if you want to develop. The liberal world's got your back. I I like it too. Obviously, the, the liberal world still does do this work, like often through um, the World Bank, uh, the world IMF. Bank. But IMF yeah. has a ton of problems, which we know about. Right. Like what? The IMF imposes really, really strict budget constraints. Okay. And, you know, their interest rates on their debt repayments, they pretty much give up all economic autonomy when they take an IMF loan. Oh. When you do an IMF loan, you pretty much have IMF regulators coming in and telling you where your money can and can't go in the budget. I see. So it's a little difficult. Okay. I you mean, know. that I, there, I, there are pros and cons to that approach uh -huh. i think although the the idea of neocolonialism does become 
that's what it scary is scary and icky there right that's what it is right it's it's, yeah. it's almost like this new age of neocolonialism but then another big portion of the bill is 14 billion dollars this is pretty much as much that's in there for israel mm. to secure the southern border and a lot of his things in here i totally agree with additional 1300 border patrol agents given our current um border situation i think that's totally reasonable mm. Funding for new inspection te technology to catch fentanyl, that's imperative. Mm. Fentanyl kills more Americans than anything else in the world. Um, so yeah, if you want to implement new technology to be able to scan cars to find fentanyl, because we know that most fentanyl comes into the country through ports of entry that just gets driven through. And we also know that the majority of people driving those cars are U.S. citizens. We know that. So this isn't an illegal immigrant problem. This isn't a we need to build a wall problem. This is a how the hell do we check every single car for white powder and pills problem. Um, we're also getting 1,600 additional asylum officers to increase by 2.5 times the number of personnel that interview and adjudicate claims for asylum. This is important. Yeah. This is how we speed up the asylum process. And this is how we get people who come into this country looking for a better opportunity, looking to create a better life for themselves, getting them to work as fast as possible to contribute to the American economy in a lawful, legal, and a good way. This is probably, in my opinion, this is the most important point totally. of this section. Yes. The, uh, the next one is 375 new immigration judge teams. This adjudicates all the issues with the asylum claims. So right there, that that is how you deal with an asylum crisis right there. Mm -hmm. you, you make it easier for the people to get processed through the asylum so the backlogs aren't years and years and years and years. Yeah. Right? And the last thing here is funding to conduct robust child labor investigations and enforcement. No one's against that. No, of I course mean, not. My The only thing I would say here is, is so like, like always, cost. Cost. Right? So we have to figure out what is worth it, what is not. I think... I, I'm I'm on board with almost everything here. Honestly, the the main things I have questions for, especially is in this last section, these top two bullet points that we have. 1,300 Border Patrol agents and funding for new inspection technology to catch fentanyl. So I'm on board with the premises, but I'm worried that this money will end up being wasted. We've talked already about how difficult it is to catch fentanyl smuggling, right? And the fact that this fentanyl often goes through border checkpoints, which of course, this new technology will be dedicated to finding that fentanyl at the checkpoints. But I'm skeptical that any kind of technology that we put there is going to outmaneuver the resources of the drug cartels in Mexico and Central America mm -hmm. uh, to prevent it from coming in. So as, again, the premise of getting rid of fentanyl and blocking it from coming into the country obviously is right. something we want to do but i i don't know if it's possible if they do this and they show results from reliable data i'm on board the 1300 border border patrol agents what exactly is this going to do is this going to is this going to prevent the illegal immigrants from coming over somewhere like the rio grande do we really think 1300 additional border agents is going to be enough to significantly stem the yeah. flow of these illegal immigrants. I think not. I don't think so either. So now we're just throwing more money and more bodies at the problem that probably won't fix it that much. Um, so this is the thing, right? Again, the ideas are good, but 
are we just going to be wasting some of this money? Well, because now I, I look at this this proposal, right? 1,600 additional asylum officers. That's not something that's getting offered by a Republican administration ever. Correct. Increase two point, yeah, okay. Um, 375 new immigration judge teams. That's never getting mm-hmm. done by a, a Republican. A Republican would do 10,000 Border Patrol agents mm-hmm. instead of 1,300, right? So I don't know... I almost think the Biden administration is putting in that 1300 number to show that they're like it, like it's a political move. I was thinking that too, but I don't agree with like it. it. I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, maybe, it, I don't know if it gets Biden reelected, it's worth it. Right. But, but now, now what's interesting here is who's for this, who's against it. Now, mm. a lot of Republicans hate this bill. A lot of Republicans hate it because Ukraine aid is tied with Israel aid which is tied with Taiwanese aid, which is tied with the border. They wanted all separate bills. Mm. Now, I am sympathetic to that, but two things for me. Number one, the House of Representatives doesn't have a speaker, so I don't really trust the idea that we could get through five large pieces of legislation in a timely manner. Okay, I don't think that's possible. Mm -mm. And number two, I think it's important to sell this defense pact as a larger struggle against authoritarianism globally. Yeah. And I think it's important to tie all of these battles and fights together to tell one seamless story, the fight against oppression, terrorism, authoritarianism, blah, blah, blah. blah. The, I mean, the one thing I'll devil's advocate is obviously that the border security oh. thing, it kind of distracts from that. Oh yeah, that's but obvious. I do, I like the strategy just the negotiation strategy mm-hmm. put everything on there first right so that means that if it gets pared down if you lose one or two of these pieces you're still getting three or four things that you really want and totally are really important so mitch mcconnell has come out in full support of the bill it's awesome mitch mcconnell has said that he likes the idea because it's in increasing the industrial base in america he said that these weapons will be produced in th- across 38 states across the United States, boosting their local economies, mm-hmm. which I hate that lo- that that economic calculation is being done for bullets and blood like that. But that's just the world we live in. Well, he, he just sounds like a neocon through and through. Yeah, that, that's I mean, yeah, that's what he is. He's, mm-hmm. he's a classic neocon, right? Yeah. He's your neocon's neocon. Um, he also said that he likes the border stuff in there. And so with McConnell behind it looks pretty secure in the Senate. Obviously, it just comes down to the House. If this bill comes up to a vote, I imagine it passes very easily. I only imagine a couple Democrats and a few Republicans voting against it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I definitely think this is going to be possible to get in. But as a few minutes ago, we got reporting from Jeff Stein of The Washington Post, who is their economics reporter. And the Biden administration is currently proposing, or they're at least eyeing, a $50 billion bill um, that is going to be something like this is all international aid, right? So he's going to be proposing or eyeing a 50 billion domestic aid package. And in there, we'll have money for childcare, broadband access, natural disaster relief, and firefighters. That's the goal. Um, the, the reason this is so important is because there are a lot of pandemic era social welfare updates or social welfare implementations that are going to be ending soon. So because of that, 70,000 child care centers are expected to close as subsidies dry up for child care. Tens of millions of low-income people are at risk of losing high-speed internet access, and 20,000 firefighters could see paychecks cut in half without congressional action. So 
there are a lot of deadlines coming up. This isn't a bill that's going to, you know, revolutionize childcare or revolutionize broadband access, but it's going to stop the bleeding that would happen if we do nothing. So hearing this, my first reaction is one, it is much, much further distracting from the idea of this bill as a let's strengthen the allied the allies against the Axis powers. This would right? be two different bills. Oh, is, yeah. is he trying to pass them in concert or is this just a completely separate totally thing? Totally separate thing. Okay, okay. Yeah, because you know what happened? After he after he went public with this, everyone's like, but what about America? We have problems here at home. Okay. Stop spending money abroad. So I think his response was like, okay, well, here's the money at home. Okay. Um. So yeah, this is, this is it's going to be a separate package completely. Well, I was thinking it might, it might actually have been good to include it. Really? Because after what you just described to me, that if this goes up for a vote, what, it's probably going to pass with flying colors, just oh, a yeah. few Democrats and a few Republicans. Yeah. Maybe that means, okay, I've got more leeway. Let's try to slip more in there. Oh, try to make this pass a little bit closer true. and have a few more things that I want. Oh, that's dirty. Right? I like the way you think, Ben. Yeah. That's dirty. <laughs> oh, you support Israel? Tactic. You support Israel? Okay, we'll also give us free childcare for a lot of people. How about yeah. that? Well, that's the thing. Like, the first offer that you give in any negotiation should be one that's essentially spat on, True. right? And if the, if his first offer is being like, yeah, I love it, make it harder for them. I like that mindset, Ben. Yeah. I like that mind. You'd be a good legislator. <laughs> All right, there we go. So cool. that is what's going on on the domestic policy front. And now let's get into the international crisis that is uh, Israel-Palestine. Yeah. Um, so I think we should do this by kind of going through the bullets of what has happened mm-hmm. um like in the most current events and yeah. then we rewind all the way back to the past okay and we work our way back mm-hmm. okay so unless you live under a rock um you know that about two weeks ago hamas invaded southern israel from gaza um and had a ma- and made a massive attack on Israeli civilians. Um, It was early in the morning of Saturday, October 7th. They struck Israel with missiles and invaded Gaza on the ground and in paragliders, killing over 1,400 Israeli citizens and taking many more hostage. So, of course, in response, Israel is, is hurt. It's furious. They start to bombard Gaza with airstrikes and missiles. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu tweets a crystal clear statement that Israel is at war with Hamas. There's no question of how strong the response is going to be. Um, The next day, the Israeli government formally declares war and calls up over 360,000 reservists in its military. Um, A few days afterwards, Prime Minister Netanyahu forms a national unity government with his chief rival, Benny Gantz, to preside over over the conflict. Um, Israel ramps up its embargo, its blockade of Gaza that it's had on since 2007. The defense minister, Yoav Gallant, Gallant, declared that they're cutting off all all supplies of food, water, and fuel until Israeli hostages were freed. Um, Israel, their evidence comes out that Israel is bombing the very corridors of escape that it is encouraging the Gazan citizens to take um, to supposedly because Israel only wants to attack Hamas and not Gaza. Um, This past Saturday, I think it was about the 14th, 
when Israel orders an evacuation of northern Gaza, where 1.1 million people live, implying it's about to invade on the ground. Um, this has enormous humanitarian consequences because these people take Israel very seriously, and enormous numbers do start moving to the south of the Gaza Strip. Um, the UN and other international organizations plead that Israel withdraws this warning because of the humanitarian crisis. Um, Hamas responds and orders people to stay, citing that it's psychological warfare from Israel. It doesn't really matter. People run away nonetheless. By the end of the first week of the war, 1,900 Gazans have died because of Israeli airstrikes and 7,700 have been injured. I don't even know what the death toll is at now. It's, it's double what you just said now, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's at like 5,000 dead or something like that. It's, it's yeah. Um, as, as Gazans try to escape, there's footage that shows evidence of the Israeli Defense Force committing war crimes, including airstrikes on medical vehicles. Um, meanwhile, there are fears of the conflict kind of leaking out and becoming a larger one as minor conflicts start brewing at the Israel-Lebanon border where Hezbollah um, presides and kind of rules over and Hezbollah is a militant um, Islamic organization that is part of the Lebanese government. Recently, something that caught headlines was a hospital in Gaza being blown up, killing about 500 people was the initial estimate, but it's been revised down to probably between one and 300. Um, Western sources have are saying that the evidence points to it being a, a Hamas missile strike that blew up the hospital. Hamas hasn't produced any evidence to back up its claim that Israel blew up the hospital. Um, and now, really, the things are kind of... Things are not at a standstill. Israel airstrikes are ramping up even further. Just yesterday, Israel was said to have attacked 400 targets. The day before, it was 320. So it's rising fast. It's killing hundreds of Gazan citizens every day. Uh, and it is just waiting on a ground invasion because of some requests from Western allies that want a little bit more time to deal with the hostages. Yeah, because the Biden administration has said, like, we're not telling the Israeli government how to go about this, right? The Biden mm -hmm. administration is like, they're asked, are you telling them to delay? Biden administration is like, no, 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 we're not telling them to delay. We're not doing that at all. We're just asking them to make sure they really thought out everything. Mm. From my perspective, that's them asking them to delay. Yes, they, right? they are. The, the Biden administration, the, yeah, the Western forces are trying to ask them to delay. And... I think that's, you know, for the better. The more we can delay this is the more likelihood that cooler heads prevail. Yeah. And this doesn't explode into a larger conflict than it needs to be. Yeah. Because Israel is rightfully angry. Mm -hmm. Israel is rightfully angry and they want to wipe Gaza off the map. They really do. Mm. They, they want Hamas destroyed at all costs. Yeah. And, you know, you can see... It, the Israeli Twitter account is gross. So it just really is. They, the United Nations tweeted, like, even rules has war. And then... Even war has rules. Even war has rules. And then Israel responded, like, even Israel can defend itself. Mm. And it's like, why did you say that? Like, what the, what the hell? Why yeah. would you say that in response to that? Why can't you just say, yeah, you're right, war does have rules? Um, there's reports that Israel 
has been hitting, you know, um, hitting a spot and then waiting for the first responders to come and then hit it again to try to kill the first responders. Um, look, I don't want to be spreading Hamas propaganda. I don't want to do that. Um, so I, I don't want to say anything that I, I don't, I don't really want to say things that I can't confirm, I guess, because the fog of war is thick. Mm-hmm. But what I do know is that this struggle and this fight and the terrorism that Hamas committed against Israel, it didn't just come out of nowhere. It started a long, long time ago. Not saying that any of the Israelis that were killed deserved any of this because they didn't. Mm-mm. Hamas was disgusting for what they did. It's not equivocal. It's not, it, you can't even debate it. They're a disgusting terrorist organization that are not justified in killing civili- civilians because <coughs> killing civilians is never justified under any circumstance. Okay. But I do think it's important that we go over the history of the Israeli Palestinian conflict. And, you know, if, if I could go through a little timeline here, just yeah. kind of telling how we got here, it's a kind of a long story, but it's important if we know. If we want to talk about this, it's important to not. Yeah. I mean, this is our deep dive. Yeah. So. so let's start with how, let's just go over how Israel was formed. So for the majority of modern history, the Ottoman Empire controlled the Levant. So Levant is like Syria, Lebanon, uh, modern day Israel, uh, down to Saudi Arabia and all that stuff. So that's like the Levant area. Okay. Um, between 1882 and 1903, um, the Russian government was basically committing its own proto-Holocaust against its Jewish population. There were massive amounts of pogroms, and a lot of Jews were being murdered. Um, think of it like, you know, black men getting lynched in the United States. So um, 35,000 Jews fled Russia and went to Palestine between 1882 and 1903. In this time period, 1.5 Jews came to America. 1.5 million. 1.5 million Jews came to America, not 1.5 Jews. That'd be fucked up. Um, what's interesting is, I didn't know this, but Russia had half of the world's Jews at this time. That's crazy. Isn't that nuts? Yeah. I, I, I don't now, know now they don't have like almost any. Damn. Which is because cr- of this. Because yeah. they all left. Now yeah. that's why America has such a large Jewish population. Mm-hmm. So... After the now this is also important. After the Ottomans captured Yemen, um, at the end of the Arabian Peninsula, all, all the Jews in Yemen moved to Palestine. So mm-hmm. we start seeing this process: Russian Jews are moving to Palestine, Yemenese Jews are moving to Palestine. Um, Russian Jews created a group called the Lovers of Zion, and this was a movement to get Jews to move to Palestine. They want to move to Palestine because it's the it's the area of their homeland. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, you know the the nation of Canaan the you know, the state of Israel from the Bible, all that stuff. They want to go back there. And if you're being persecuted everywhere else, it makes sense that you want to go back there. No one's stopping them. You can move to the Ottoman Empire. It's not illegal. Yeah. You're allowed to move there. It's fine. And seemingly they're getting persecuted less <laughs> there. So. Way less there, right? Yeah. So um, Theodore uh, Herzl published uh, The Jewish State, in which he asserted that the solution to grow, in which he asserted that a growing solution the solution to growing anti-Semitism in Europe would be for the Jews to have their own state away from Europe. Mm-hmm. We're getting into that. We're getting into the Nazi time, guys. We're getting there. You know. So now World War One breaks out. Um, this gave Britain control of the region during the peace negotiations. Um, and the, because importantly, the Ottoman Empire ended at the end of World War One. Yeah, Ottoman Empire is gone. Yeah. Okay. Uh, defeated, gone. So now they get to cart it, uh, cut it up. And the League of Nations gives the 
United Kingdom dominion over the land called Mandatory Palestine. And Mandatory Palestine is like modern-day Jordan plus modern-day Israel. That's Mandatory Palestine. And this is around the time when the Balfour Declaration of 1917 comes, where the British government officially recognizes that it wants to create a Jewish state. This happens in 1917, before the Mandatory Palestine. So we have the Balfour Declaration, and then we have the Mandatory Palestine being given dominion to the United Kingdom. Okay. Now, the Russian Civil War breaks out. 100,000 Jews die, um, and 600,000 refugees flee Russia. Most, many of these people went to Palestine. Mm. So now we see another increase of Jewish population in, Paris, um, in Palestine. Arabs are getting mad at this, and they're getting mad at Western imperialism for being in their country mm -hmm. or their region. Country is a hard word here because I don't know if country is the right word. No, I so, think region makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Arab, the Arabs begin to fight back, and Jews were caught in the crossfire. Anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish um, riots start breaking out in Jerusalem. Um, U.S. Immigration Act of 1924 um, really drives down jewish acceptance into the united states the immigration act of 1924 started mandating what percentage of ethnicities the united states would be taking in jews were hurt there so jews can no longer enter the united states so arab and jewish things start going up they start fighting over the wailing wall now nazi germany nazi germany comes to power during the early reign of the nazi uh, of the nazi era Nazis would give Jews the option to have all of their possessions confiscated, and then they would ship them off to Palestine with nothing. Um, this happened for about 50,000 Jews were able to get out of Nazi Germany this way. Um, so now we can see here 33% of Palestine by the end of World War II were Jews. 33% of the region. Um, Arab revolts are breaking out, and we have... Some Jews who are pacifists and some Jews who are not pacifists. So the Pillay Commission looked to this is in the British government, looked to create a Jew only zone that would move 250,000 Arabs out of the area. Well, Palestinian Arabs completely rejected that and went into massive revolt. This was only kind of ended in when the white paper of 1938 1939 was released. And they said that one state should be made jointly ruled by Arabs and Jews. Both Jews and Arabs rejected this, but it ended this era of revolt. Mm -hmm. This is an important moment because at this moment, both sides say that they don't want to live in the same state. Mm. This makes it really, really hard here. Both the Jews and the Arabs reject the white papers of the white paper of 1939. With that, it kind of locks them into a perpetual war for dominance forever. There's really no other way out except for a two-state solution. But who's going to draw the lines? Well, by the end of World War II, we have some type of answer to this. Um, we see a UN solution proposed that would create a Jewish state and a Palestinian state. Okay. And with this, the Jews were happy and the Arabs were not. The Jews were very, very satisfied with this. 
um, and were willing to accept the solution. The Arabs were not. So on May 14th, 1948, on the day the last British forces left, the Jewish People's Council gathered at Tel Aviv Museum and proclaimed the establishment of the Jewish State of Israel. So this is 14th, May 14th, 1948. At that moment, the Soviet Union and the United States both recognize Israel. In response, Arabs of all countries, Egypt, Jordan, all of them, invaded from all sides to defend the Palestinian Arabs' right to self-determination. Israel won this war, an armistice was signed, and the newly acquired territories um, from the Jews were not recognized by the Palestinian Arabs. So Israel gets formed through UN recognition. The British pull out, and immediately the Arabs reject the United Nations proposal after the Soviet Union and the United States, the two major powers, both recognize Israel's existence, and immediately the Arabs invade. And Israel wins. And Israel wins. Yeah. Really kind of setting the tone for the rest of the hundred years. Yeah, and totally. I mean, not just that Israel wins, but also that Israel knows that it can win and that it remains in the crosshairs of the Arab world that it is surrounded by. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to stop here for a second and pause before we get into really modern history here, because... This is where a lot of the issues kind of arise from the Western left's perspective. We have an issue in the Western left right now because the Western left believes that Israel is a settler colonial state that has no right to exist, mm. that it's a settler colony, that the Western nations moved people in, drew lines on a map, and dictated how these countries would form. Now, I have issues with that interpretation because this wasn't drawn by Western influences. This was drawn by the UN. Mm -hmm. Well, which is Western influenced heavily. I, I suppose, but I it, think... Especially at this time. Yeah, I right? would, sure, sure. But what do you think about that settler colonial statement? I, I think that might be technically true, but I think it might be a rare instance where it's okay. But like, like they... they don't have anywhere to go and they are persecuted everywhere they go and even in this place where it is like their their biblical homelands kind of and um they're not committing violence they're just trying to find a place where they can live amongst other people like them they are being attacked especially in this moment in this moment they're not committing violence and i think that's important yes right exactly and so like it makes sense in this moment to give them a place where they will have a government that is specifically chosen by them and meant to protect them and because i i have an issue with ethno states across the board yeah. i would never suggest that there should be a black state in america mm -hmm. ever or you know um an exclusively white state i would never suggest something like that mm -hmm. so israel is my test because Israel's an ethnostate. Yes. Am I going to be for an ethnostate? When your ethnicity is persecuted by everybody and you've been holocausted, yes. Well, <laughs> I think that's fair. Well, okay, let's say let's say before the Civil War in the US, yeah. there was a proposal for a black ethnostate. Yes. I I'd be for that. I would be for that. Easily. Right? Like Easily. it's Easily. I talk about this a lot 
Um, but sometimes politically, it's not it's not smart or right to argue only on a basis of principle. Yeah, it's about what is actually going to create the best solutions for the people involved, and in this case, for the people being oppressed. Yes. Sometimes results matter more than ideology. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And this is one of those cases where... At this point. At this point, right now. 1948. I don't believe Israel has done anything wrong. Up until 1948. No. We had Jews who naturally immigrated there over the course of 50 years because of outside... 70 years because of outside persecution. Mm -hmm. They were looking for a place to to find home. The Ottoman Empire was actually relatively good for eth- for religious minorities compared mm-hmm. to other European countries, that's for sure. Yeah. So they went there in the hopes of getting some type of freedom, and eventually 33% of this region became Jewish. When you're drawing the lines on the map here, especially in the age... <coughs> Jeez. Especially in the age of, like, self-determination... This is the moment for nations like this to happen. That's how we have Czech, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, right? Mm-hmm. And the, and yeah, that's how we get those nations. And the, like the nation of Poland, it's because we said that the Polish people have a right to self-determination. And I think that this, I wouldn't agree with something like that in this moment of history, but in that moment of history, it makes total sense. Yeah. And even Marx was in favor of national revolutions in a lot of ways. Karl Marx was in, very much in favor of the Irish national revolution. Um, he was in favor of a lot of the Germanic national revolutions in the 1848 revolution. So it's not an anti-leftist thing to say, like, I'm for some national revolutions at specific points in history because they drive um, historical progress, right? Um, and historical progress, I mean like a movement towards more liberty a movement mm-hmm. towards you know a more egalitarian society so by 1948 that's where we are mm-hmm. and i don't really have too much sympathy at this point for the arab side at all no because right now to me they only seem like the aggressor I agree. It seems like we had an international compromise signed on by the UN, the Soviet Union, and the United States, and then the Arabs said no and attacked to kill them. Yes. Well, it's, I mean, it's it's kind of reminiscent of the hatred that some immigrants get in the U.S. Mm-hmm. now, right? It's it's like they have they have space, right? They're not harming people in any way, mm-hmm. but it's just because they're people that came from somewhere else that aren't exactly like us culturally. Yeah. So now Israel goes on existing for a while. And then we have the Six-Day War of 1967. Arabs invade again. Egypt moves in from Sinai. We have Jordan and Syria moving in from the east. We have Lebanon moving in from the north. And on May 26, Nasser, the president of Egypt, said, the battle will be a general one and our basic object will be to destroy Israel. You can't really get more blatant than that. Mm -mm. Um, well, Israel won, and they won fast in these six days. They were able to gain control of the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights of Syria, formerly Jordanian-controlled West Bank of the Jordan River. East Jerusalem was also annexed. Yeah. Again, 
Arabs attacked and the Jews repelled them. Yeah. I think this is a place where I want to jump in real quick Mm -hmm. because this was a turning point, not just for the territorial gains of Israel, but also in U.S.-Israeli relations. True. So this is an important moment where I want to jump in on Israel relations with the U.S. because before the Six-Day War, uh, the two countries were... They, they had some interaction. Um, obviously, the UN, the US is a big part of, and the UN did try to create Israel as a country. Um, but then something different is happening in 1967 when the, when the Six-Day War occurs. Um, there's, a, there's a fear when it breaks out that the, the, that the Soviet Union is going to be aligned with the Arab countries and its influence is going to spread by crushing Israel as all of these countries invaded at the same time. Um, the U.S. is stretched because it's currently in Vietnam fighting that proxy war, and it doesn't really have the resources to spare to help in Israel. But then Israel wins, and the U.S. takes notice, and it's like, oh, shit, they can really handle themselves. Mm-hmm. This is a valuable ally to have. Um, and so since then, the the relationship has developed and they got much closer and there's been more coordination on defense and we've given a lot of military aid and sold some of it to Israel. Um, and this was kind of a, just a big jumping off point for that relationship. Mm-hmm. That's super important to, t- to talk about Israel's role in the Cold War of being a bulwark against Soviet expansion into the Arab world, really. Yeah. Right. Um, and then this Arab-Israeli conflict obviously just continues to keep heating up. Mm-hmm. And we get into October 6th of 1973, where the Yom Kippur War begins, where Syria and Egypt both attack Israel on the same day by surprise, because it's a uh, Jewish holiday, and Israel won again. Um, Israel won again. A UN armistice was put in place. Um, one thing that's important to note here is that the Labour Party is still in power in Israel at this point. The right wing of Israel has never been in power yet. Mm. They have never won an election of 1973. Has never happened. Um, also notable, after this war, the Yom Kippur War, after it's over, November 1974, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, was granted observer status at the United Nations. So this is the UN really, really trying to keep to their original proposal of 1948. They're really trying. Mm. Now they're like recognizing the Palestinian Liberation Organization. They're letting them have observer status. They're not saying that they're not calling them like a country yet. Yeah. Because to do that, the Palestinian Liberation Organization would have to, you know, accept the existence of Israel's current borders. Yes. Yes. And... And that was never going to happen. That was never going to happen. Yeah. So in 1977, the right takes power for the first time and things start heating up. Um, Egypt recognizes Israel, which is a massive step for peace. Mm. This was orchestrated by Jimmy Carter. Um, It was one of his most amazing foreign policy achievements. Um, In response to this, and this is what I think is very, very interesting. In response to Egypt recognizing Israel, Lebanese Palestinians, so you can think of this as like pre-Hezbollah, Hezbollah, 
um, committed the Coastal Road Massacre in opposition to the Egyptian-Israeli peace process. So this killed 30-something Jewish people, and the Palestinian Liberation, Liberation Organization took up positions in south of Lebanon and attacked Israel from there. Um, an Israeli ambassador was almost assassinated, which caused the Israelis to invade southern Lebanon in 1982. So this is the first time where the Israelis are really, really invading the, their nations first, mm-hmm. right? One of their ambassadors to Lebanon was almost assassinated, and in response, the Israelis invade Lebanon. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure a big part of this is, one, due to Israel being encouraged that it has just won the Six-Day War in 1967. It won mm-hmm. the Yom Kippur War in 1973. It's like, okay, we have some military capability. We can invade. Plus... It has been aligned more with the big, bad U.S. and the Western powers. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, when they invade southern Lebanon, it actually doesn't go well for them. And Israel ends up losing this war. Mm. Losing is a strong word, but they don't make the progress that they wanted to. And eventually, um, they pulled out, but they kept a small force there that was stationed there until like May 2000. So they were occupying southern Lebanon for a very, very, very long time. Um so that is like the that's basically like the military stuff that's going on here Mm -hmm. so to put things in perspective at this point we're in the year 2000 okay we're getting to really modern history you know i'm born by this point israel is occupying gaza right israel is occupying the west bank of jordan pretty much okay this is when we have the first intifada so israel has been setting settlers to Gaza and the West Bank since 1948 now. Now, this is where I have an issue with the state of Israel. You signed up for the 1948 borders. You agreed to the 1948 borders. You championed the 1948 borders. You founded your country based upon the 1948 borders. And your decision to send settlers into Gaza and into the West Bank, areas you knew were not in your UN charter, was a mistake. Mm-hmm. And it was a blatant power grab. Yeah. Because they want to be able to use the logic of, oh, look, now there's Jews over there. We need that land too. Yeah. Oh, there's Jews over there. We need that land too. And it's not okay. They're taking advantage of a process that was meant to give an oppressed people peace. Right? Yeah. And they're, yeah, they're used, they're taking advantage of that to become oppressors themselves. Yes. Which is insanity. But like, on the other end, if the Palestinians are never going to give them peace, yeah, what's their incentive? Of course. Right? They, they, they declare their state in 1948, and then they get invaded and almost killed, right? Yeah. So, yeah, well, there's a, there is a constant like you can understand from the Israeli perspective, there's a constant anxiety. Mm-hmm. We're always, we're hated. They want to attack us. They want to destroy the idea and the presence of a Jewish state. Mm-hmm. So the I, th- I would assume the thought process, the feeling is um, we're playing offense as defense. Yeah. Yeah. But there, there now there's also, there's also this, religious component for the settlements that they want to control the land of Canaan 
mm-hmm. for religious reasons. Mm-hmm. I'm not an expert on you know Jewish religion or whatever, but I'm pretty sure for like Christian or Jewish religions or stuff like that, when the Israeli people occupy the land of Canaan again, the Messiah will come or something like that. Okay. There's something in, along those lines. And I'm not a religious scholar. That's not, you know, I can barely talk about politics. But anyway, that's what, there's another religious element to this. And the settlers who go into the West Bank and go into Gaza, especially today, are the most religious zealots of them, mm-hmm. right? They are the most fundamentalist Orthodox Jews. Um, yeah. So... In this first Antifada is what we were talking about. Economic op- So we have Israeli settlers in Gaza, Israeli settlers in the West Bank. We have economic, economic opportunity to Palestinians um, being few and far between, which is brewing this mass of resentment. Um, obviously, the biggest, ga- the, the, the best fuel for um, hatred is uh unemployment (laughs) yeah because people are bored and they feel like their lives can't get better Mm -hmm. right um so at this moment we start seeing the rise of hamas the palestinian liberation organization islamic jihad um all of these groups are launching attacks on israel now it's interesting that I, i again i don't know enough i don't know everything i'm not an expert okay so when I read about this, it said Hamas, PLO, Islamic Jihad launched attacks on Israel. That's what I read in an article about the first Intifada, okay? Okay. And then I looked up casualty statistics. And the first line about my, the casualty statistics are, in the first year in the Gaza Strip, 142 Palestinians were killed. No Israelis died. Does that make sense? No. It doesn't make sense. I don't know what happened. I, I, I can't I'm not I can't say what happened, but it's just it's weird to me that like I'm getting some sources saying Hamas and the PLO launches an attack and then in the first year 142 Palestinians die and zero Israelis. Yeah, that is weird. And I, I I'm I'm skeptical about saying anything about it because I don't understand. Yeah, I don't understand. So I just I needed to say that sure. at least. Okay. Yeah. So now we have on October 8th, 1990, we have 22 Palestinians killed by Israeli police during the 1990 Temple Mount killings at Al-Aqsa. Now, Al-Aqsa is a very important um, Muslim temple. Muslim temple? Um, Is that what they're called? Mosque. Yeah. Uh, A Muslim mosque um, in Jerusalem. Okay. Um, The United States vetoed any attempt for the United Nations to condemn Israel's abuse of the Palestinians. This starts a pattern. So this is what's starting a pattern. So now we're at the point where the Israelis are the top dog in the region. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. The Israelis are the ones with the power. It has flipped. And it really go. And now it's important to see how they're going to wield that power. And the killing at Al-Aqsa and the UN's Basically, complete preparation to condemn Israel for the attack with the lone U.S. veto. Yeah. That's showing that Israel isn't being um, held, accountable. held accountable. Yeah, it's, it is completely, it's condoned, it's enabled by the U.S. My interpretation of it is that Americans are, the American government is afraid to condemn Israel because it's going to make us look bad because mm-hmm. of how deep our involvement is with them, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's 
where the pattern is. I mean, we had similar statements after after like a Jewish Palestinian skirmish in 2021 from Nancy Pelosi, where a ton more Palestinian civilians died, where it's like Israel has the right to defend itself. And it, America just keeps repeating that line, even though it's past defending itself. Right. Now. Like Israel has the right to defend itself. Does Israel have the right to kill 22 Palestinians inside of a mosque? Probably not. Yeah. Can we, we need like, the, no, it yeah, does not. That's not. And we need to be able themselves. to say that. Yeah. Um, by not saying that it makes it so when Israel does defend itself, we don't believe you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you call everything defending yourself, when you call 27 people or 30 something people dying from tear gas inhalation as defending itself, that's not defending itself. No. That's abuse of crowd control. Okay. Mm -hmm. So. This temple, this 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 pattern continues. We have lawyers in Gaza going on strike because they were protesting the inability um, to visit their clients. Mm -hmm. um, and in response, Israel detained the deputy head of the lawyers' association and um, held him without trial for six months. There's no excuse for something like that. No, there's no excuse for that, and we need to be able to say that. Um, PLO is eventually recognized by the United States. And here the PLO is calling for restoration of the 1947 borders. So it took about 50 years, but the PLO now says, okay, we're ready for the UN borders in 1947. Uh, it's a little too late, it's man. It's so funny and not funny, but like the, the, the problem is that there's the oppressor needs to be the one that says, Let's restore these borders. And yeah. the oppressor never will because they don't have to. Yep. And in, in 1947, the ones with all the power were the Arabs. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's why they would never say it then. And even if it ever got to a point where it felt 50-50, each side would think, oh, we have we have a chance to win here completely. They would just kill each other. Yeah. So it needs to it needs to be like 80-20 and the 80 side says, let's take these borders. Yeah. Exactly. And then it'll, it'll just never happen. But this is a big moment for Palestinian liberation because the PLO is recognized by the United States. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. Um, now the next thing that really happens that changes almost everything is the Oslo Accords. Yep. So the Oslo Accords really upended everything. And it really presented this moment of opportunity that we hadn't seen before. It was like the best opportunity since the Egypt recognized Israel. The PLO recognized the state of Israel. Um, and Israel recognized the PLO as the representative of the Palestinian people, no more, no less. Mm -hmm. Pretty interesting language, not say that, you know, they had a state or anything, but he was yeah. a representative of the Palestinian people. Um, because of the Oslo Accords, we saw partial withdrawal um, from the Israelis from Gaza and Jericho, and even transferred power and authority and um, powers and responsibilities onto the Palestinian Authority. Um, the PA, you'll most likely see them abbreviated in the news. Um, there are self-governing authorities that start popping up in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And this moment is where Hamas starts really becoming active. Mm -hmm. And Hamas starts suicide bombing inside of Israel because Hamas is now getting angry at the PLO. Because Hamas is frustrated that the Palestinian Liberation Organization has recognized the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. Because in Hamas's charter, understand the motives of, of Hamas. Hamas 
wants to destroy the state of Israel and kill all the Jewish people who live in Palestine. Yeah. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They are for genocide openly. Openly. That's in their charter. Yes. Okay. Um, so Hamas is angry that the more moderate wing of Palestinian liberation, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which represents the Palestinian people at the UN and is considered to be the representative of the Palestinian people, is recognizing the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. So there is still progress here, though. In 2005, every single Jewish settler was evacuated from Gaza, some of them even forcibly. This was by the state of Israel itself taking its people out of Gaza and putting them back in Israel. They did this forcibly. We're talking tens of thousands of people. That's a true step towards de-escalation, if I've ever if I've ever seen it. Yeah, that's pretty intense. Mm -hmm. um, disengagement from the West Bank was completed in September 2005, and military disengagement from the Northwest Bank was completed ten days later. So we really saw a You're moment here where this could be over, moving in a very positive direction. Yes. Yeah. 2006, the people of Gaza hold their first legislative election. And Hamas wins it. Um, Hamas leaders rejected all agreements signed with Israel, refused to recognize Israel's right to exist, refused to abandon the terror tactics, and occasionally claimed that the Holocaust was a Jewish conspiracy um, to earn international sympathy. So this is disgusting, this right? Is, this is really—it's just so sad um, and deflating to think about because— Hamas, and I, I read about this earlier today, people didn't agree with Hamas's um, like stated goals. It didn't agree with the Israel state not existing. And exit polls showed this. They didn't agree with genociding the Jews. Mm -hmm. People were upset at corruption. People had a problem with the amount of corruption that existed in the PLO. And there still does exist a lot of corruption in the PLO. Sure. They super overpay the um, highest ranking members. Uh, they're, and of course, when right when people are in the kind of economic turmoil that the Gazans and the Palestinians in the West Bank have endured, then they see that all of a sudden, okay, we do have a governing body that's ruling over us, and yet they're hoarding all of the resources and all the opportunities for themselves. Mm -hmm. You get pissed at that. And Hamas ran on that. Hamas ran on that more than they ran on, we want to destroy the Jewish people. They yeah. ran on corruption is bad, and and the, the PLO has a bunch of corruptions, and we were, aren't going to have that. And Hamas also didn't start out as a militant group. Hamas started out really did a lot of work for social welfare. Yep. And that's how they built so much good re like goodwill. Goodwill with the community. They started yeah. delivering food. And guess what? If you're starving and you go to a voting booth, you're going to vote for the guy who gave you food. Yeah. Um, exactly. But there's another side to this that it would be wrong to ignore. Israel funded the creation of Hamas. Yep. And Israel really helped create them. Mm -hmm. So Brigadier General uh, uh, Yitzhak Zegrev whatever, um, Z-E-G-E-V, okay? Um, he reports that he told the New York Times that Israel helped finance the Palestinian Islamist movement as a counterweight to the secularists and leftists of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO. Um, and 
the Fatah party, which was led by a guy named Yasser Arafat, and he referred to Hamas as a creature of Israel. Oh, man. The retired brigadier general, he said this, the Israeli government gave me a budget and the military government gives to the mosques. So we have other Israeli religious officials that say Hamas, to my greatest regret, is Israel's creation. Um, It's just not... They were they were doing this to to hurt Palestinian unity yeah. and, and Palestinian solidarity by making them fight against each other. Yeah, and Palestinian legitimacy. Yeah, right. If they're led by a terrorist organization, it's a lot easier to say they don't have a right to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's so sad and disgusting. Um, and what and makes this situation so complicated. Right. It's what, yes. And so this is in effect due to the hard right wing of the Israeli government looking to capture all of the land for themselves. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, they could not allow the success of the Oslo Accords to continue. Because if they did, well, this is actually pre the Oslo Accords, or if we're talking 1980, where some mm-hmm. of this funding gets started, this is pre Oslo Accords, right? So, they don't even know that this is going to be happening yet. So they're, they're not aware that they're funding the people that will eventually want to genocide them. Mm. They don't know that. They just think that they're, you know, they're funding the Mujahideen to fight the the Soviet Union the same way. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, they don't know what they're doing, but it comes out to bite them. And they created the Hamas in a lot of ways. Yeah. So after Hamas takes over Gaza in 2007, the Israelis, in combination with Egypt, blockade um, the Gaza Strip. Egypt blockades the Gaza Strip because the founding members of Hamas were members of the Islamic Brotherhood, which operated inside of Egypt and caused terror throughout Egypt. Mm-hmm. And the Islamic Brotherhood guys got into Gaza Strip, and those were the guys who founded Hamas. So Egypt wanted nothing to do with them, and they did not want them back in the country. Yeah. I also, I think an important thing to say here is there was a, there was a, civil war inside Gaza after Hamas won the elections mm-hmm. because it militarily destroyed Fatah, the um, the opposition party. Right. So now, of course, Gaza is is ruled by Hamas, not democratically at all. Not like, at there's all. There's not been an election since. So that's that, that. I hate seeing that. Like they elected Hamas. Okay. They elected Hamas in 2006. Hamas did not get a majority of the vote. They only got 46% of the vote. They didn't even get a majority. Um, After that, they killed their opposition. Mm -hmm. They canceled all future elections. And half of the people inside of Gaza are under the age of 18 who didn't get to vote in that election. You cannot reasonably say that they voted in Hamas. That's not fair. Mm -mm. It's not fair. No. Um, So with this blockade, this is very hard because by... You know, UN definition, by international law definition, a blockade is an act of war. Yeah. So And and Israel has always justified the blockade by saying if they don't blockade, then Hamas will be able to get weapons. Yes. Yes. Collect enough resources to have more effective attacks on Israel. Yes. And that kind of brings us to where we are now. Yeah. This is where we are in the modern day. Israel has continued to expand its settlements into the West Bank. Yes. Um and while they have removed their military from Gaza, they are still blockading it with Egypt. Mm-hmm. And what I think is so interesting about this moment that really, really rhymes with the moment in 1982 with the Lebanese 
peace agreement where Saudi Arabian relations were really improving with Israel. Yes. And they were on their way to normalizing the same way that the Lebanese and the Israelis were on their way to normalizing mm -hmm. um, in 1982. And because of that, the I think Hamas saw this as an unacceptable occurrence yeah. and needed to strike the same way that the Palestinians thought that way in 1982 with the Lebanese normalization. Yeah, I think I think that and the the West Bank settlements along with the the violence against Palestinians in the West Bank that has come with the rise since the end of last year of the most right-wing government, the most nationalist Zionist government in Israel that we've seen probably in two decades yeah. um, to encourage that kind of behavior. Uh, this is not that anyone deserves it, but it it is very likely that you are going to incur some kind of extremist reaction when you squeeze a people like this the way that Israel has done for a long time. Yeah, I mean... Like when you think like what they do with these settlements in the West Bank, right? They'll move families out there into what's supposed to be Palestinian land. And sometimes they'll wait for the Palestinian families to be on vacation or to leave their homes. Then they'll move in an Israeli family and throw all the Palestinian family stuff out in the street and just say, my home now. I mean, that's craziness. Yeah. That's craziness. Yeah. And, you know, Israel is placing these settlements in very, very strategic locations to make it impossible to draw a Palestinian state out of the land that's left, mm -hmm. right? They're like encircling Palestinian areas so that no cartographer can come in and say, oh, here's the Palestinian state, here's the Jewish state. It's like Jewish pockets all throughout the West Bank. Yeah. So you can't draw them out. Yeah, and, and you know that also makes the the Israelis get control of water supplies, shut off water to key locations to force Palestinians out of areas in the West Bank. We know that this stuff is happening, and like, and the and we don't call it out. The U.S. government does not call it out. Still, still, um, we. I look, mean, and now, of course, something like this happens. And then we're just we're just encouraged, mm -hmm. right? We just look like we're more in the right, uh, and we can continue to put everything on Hamas or um, just avoid. We can, we can continue to ignore any blame that Israel might have on its shoulders in these kinds of in not even in this situation, but just in the grand scheme of these events taking place. Mm -hmm. And right now, Saudi Arabia is pushing for the restoration of the the 1967 borders. Mm. Um, I think the the PLO is now for the 1967 borders, not the 47, 67, as mo from modern day. Okay, mm. but now here's my problem. I don't even think it's possible. There are too many Jews in the West Bank, so they would have to be moved. You're saying, yeah, hundreds of thousands of Jews would have to be moved out of the West Bank. To make that happen hundreds of thousands and that sucks because i don't want to justify a country purposefully sending people of their ethnicities into another country and then saying oh that's mine now like imagine if mexico did that mm -hmm. imagine if mexico puts a bunch of mexicans into arizona and then it's like oh wait that's mexico now Bop, mine yeah that's actually my rightful claim it was my land first 
technically. Yeah, right? but I, I agree with that. But then again, you were just talking about how Israel evacuated tens of thousands of people from Gaza when things were de-escalating. And that's not hundreds of thousands. That's not a hundred thousand. True. That's way different. It's just it's just so much more people, and it's a more radicalized population too. Yes. And it's a more like that's it's I, a more radicalized population than what it was. Yeah. It's not. I think it's possible, but it's not feasible. Mm. Um, well, because I don't. Whenever we see population exchanges like that, trying to make these ethnic borders work, it never it never works. It ends up in genocide. Every time when we looked at, like, look at the, the partition of India, mm-hmm. when we tried to have the Muslim area of India and the Hindu area of Israel, we gave Pakistan, Bangladesh, whatever, massive murders. Yeah. In the upper of a million people dying. That's what would happen in, in this type of I think you're right. I, okay, population I, separation. I have a little bit, I want to go, I have some more on the more immediate yeah so let's get into the geopolitical of this but before we go on to the geopolitical of this i want to just talk about some polling okay that we have out of israel and gaza and the west bank sure now this is pretty surprising so at least for me i didn't know this okay so in 2013 74 percent of arab israelis favored a two-state solution in 2013 46 percent of jewish israelis favored this by 2023 only 32% of Jewish Israelis want a two-state solution. That means they're in favor of a one-state solution. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you one thing. They, they, don't, they don't want a one-state solution that's a secular one-state. Yeah. They don't want a one-state solution that's Palestinians and Jews. They want their state. Yeah. Then we look at Palestinian support, Palestinian opinion. Now, polling in Palestine is a little hard, obviously, for clear reasons. Um, but if we look at Gaza, 20% want some peaceful negotiations, 30% want some peaceful popular resistance, and a little over 50% want an armed struggle. <sighs> this looks like two people that are just not interested in peace, man. Yeah. They don't look like they're interested There's in it. There's too much animosity, hatred. There's yeah. too much history. And I want to be able to say, throw that history away, look at today, call for a ceasefire right now. I mean, I would, if well, I was in any position of power at all, I would call for a ceasefire immediately. Yeah, we, we get to say that because we're not in it. Right. Right. And that's, I mean, I want you to continue with the rest of the... No, data. no, no, I'm done. It's just okay. now that they're, they're, this conflict looks like it's boiling over and there's consequences to that geopolitically. Yeah. Well, the, the, the you're right about, I think you were saying earlier, like who draws the lines? Like the only way this ends is a bigger stick gets in and draws the lines and says, we're going to punish you if you do the wrong thing. And honestly, I would have hoped that the U.S. would actually respond to some of the bad actions by Israel and say, we're going to sanction you in these ways. Mm-hmm. We're going to give you less support. Like Never. condition our support and our relationship on good behavior. And we, we haven't have done, done that. that. And that's an enormous failure because we've of re- our foreign policy we've rewarded their bad behavior for so many years they've had no incentive to change exactly over and over again and it's because of spineless politicians who are scared of being called anti-semitic being anti-radical zionist does not make you anti-semitic no it does not make you anti-semitic to say that jewish people don't have the right to upend 
Arab populations and blockade Arab-controlled areas. They don't have the right to do that. Yeah, in fact, it makes you anti-Muslim <laughs> to not say it. Mm-hmm. That's the issue. Yeah. And that's but the and the issue with that is the reason they don't care is because Americans are so good at hating Muslims. True. So it's always in their political best interest, which fucking sucks. And it's less so now, and I will call out that the progressive movement has pushed the Democratic Party to the point of being more pro the Palestinian people than Israel because it's aware of what's going on, which I'm very proud of the democratic side for doing, but, but it's only the the progressives and like Biden, even Biden isn't really progressive enough to even say anything like that. Listen, Biden isn't terrible on this, but he's by no means great. Yeah. By no means. Yeah. Um, you know, so, he's sending, he wants to send $16 billion to Israel and a hundred million for humanitarian aid to Gaza. Give me a break. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, I guess the humanitarian aid is something we should cover real quick. In the past two days, there have been trucks, I think about 35 trucks with support materials that have been allowed to go into Gaza from the Sinai Peninsula, Sinai Peninsula um, of Egypt, which is like, to be clear, a tiny, tiny trickle that is nowhere near what they need. But fortunately, we this is a good thing that the U.S. has done is we have pushed this over and over again that there needs to be, it needs to be prioritized that there can be continuous support given to the Gazans. Totally. And the door has now opened for that. Um, one thing that I that is really interesting, one of the biggest questions that came out after this was how could Israel not know that this was coming? So true. Israel's intelligence cap- capabilities are possibly the best in the world because of the position it's been in, right? It's been surrounded by enemies Mm -hmm. constantly, and it's been given U.S. support, military support, technology support for years and years and years. And so it's been able to build up these defense capacities, which includes its intelligence capabilities. So how is this world-class intelligence organization in Israel unable to know that this attack happened? Well, we can only speculate right now. Maybe the intel was just too general and because policymakers usually don't respond unless it's extremely specific. Like this attack is going to happen at this place and at this time, and it's going to be this big. And we have a pulse on that specifically, right? Because tensions are always high between mm-hmm. Hamas and Israel. So you need something really Actionable. extreme, yes, to get through the noise. Maybe they didn't have people on the ground there. The idea is that they should have people on the ground, but with tensions rising, anybody who is on the inside is risking not only their own death, but the death of their family. I want to comment on that, why the people on the ground, right? Yeah. So in the West Bank, a lot of Israeli defense forces have to be set up in the West Bank to protect the settlers that they're sending in there. Mm -hmm. And it diverts a lot of military um, focus that should be on the Gazan Strip, which is way more militarized. Yeah, definitely. Um, the signals intelligence might have been ineffective because of false trails from Hamas. The idea is that um, they Hamas talked about how they didn't want to make an attack anytime soon on lines that they knew Israel were listening to mm. because of how they were still reeling from the 2021 um, kind of battle war that had happened uh, and that they weren't ready. Yeah. 
And then good operational security always interrupts intelligence operations, right? If if Hamas compartmentalized the knowledge so that the paragliders didn't know about the ground invasion, didn't know about the missile attacks that would be happening, um, it's harder to understand the full scope of the attack that might be coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't know exactly. I've also heard speculation, strong speculation, that this is going to lead to the downfall of the Israeli government. You can't have an intelligence failure this bad without um, getting massive change. Though, I wonder if it's just going to further nationalize the people. I I, I think Netanyahu's gone. Okay. I don't think his government's going to get trusted. There's another far-right party that might gain support. Yeah. Um, but his party's gone. Okay. I don't think that he comes back from this at all. They're all so mad at him. Like, and they should be mad at him. Yeah. It's ridiculous that they, he let this happen. It's a horrific failure. Um, and so, yeah, then the, the geopolitical... Yeah, I want to talk about how, them. like, U.S.'s and China and Iran are all related here because everyone has their hand in this fucking pie. Yeah, so I think the, the most... The, Iran is like the closest, yeah. the most involved. I mean, I guess the U.S. and Iran are kind of similarly involved, but Iran directly funds Hamas. Uh, so it's likely that they knew about the attack before it was going to happen. They've claimed that they didn't. Yes. But I don't believe them. Potentially, yeah. Potentially, they sprouted the idea. But again, that's all speculation. They also fund Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, which has similar uh, goals to Hamas in that it doesn't that it seeks the destruction of the Israeli state. Um, so Hezbollah launched rockets into northern Israel when the Hamas attack happened, but they haven't gone in on their own offensive. And I think this is because they're too afraid to go on their own because Lebanon is already in shambles as a country. More than 80% of the country is below the poverty line. If they incite an attack from Israel, like the one that Gaza is currently facing, Hezbollah won't survive because yeah. Hezbollah is only a part of the Lebanese government, right. unlike Hamas and Gaza. And Israel can very easily fight a two-front war between Hezbollah and Gaza. I mean, yeah. the war against Hezbollah will be way easier than the war against Gaza. A uh, war against Gaza will be a slog of urban warfare fighting for every floor inside of every building. Mm-hmm. Fighting against Hezbollah is oh, fire, fighting in the open field. Yeah. That, that Israel will wipe the floor with them in a second. Exactly. They really wanted to. Yeah. Um, and then otherwise in the region, you already talked about this, the, this war totally puts a pause on the, the negotiations between Israel and Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. to normalize relations. Um, yeah. So that's as far as the region. The U.S., as you can probably already take from what we've been talking about, has been extremely supportive of Israel. Um, the Biden administration has stated repeatedly that this is not a war against the Palestinians. This is a war against Hamas. Um, Their rhetoric is do not break the rules of war, Israel. Um, You that's that's not okay. We have to try to save as many civilians as possible. I don't think it means anything. I think it's all political bluster. Yeah. Uh, The U.S. has put carrier groups, aircraft carriers off the coast in the Red Sea. Uh, 
and intercepted missiles over the Red Sea bound for Israel, launched by the Houthi rebel forces in Yemen, which, which are insane. So these Houthi rebel forces are another Iran-backed yeah. terrorist group um, that are fighting Saudi-backed government of Yemen. So, I mean, just we have missiles flying in from the south from the Houthis. We have mm-hmm. missiles flying in from the north from Hezbollah. We have guys flying in from paragliders from the east. Uh, from the West, from Gaza. And, I mean, what would have happened if the carrier group wasn't there? Was the missiles just about to hit <laughs> Israel? Maybe. I mean, Iron Dome, maybe. Yeah, but these missiles are way bigger than, like, what Gaza was shooting at. Okay. You know, like, this is this is like a flying all the way over Saudi Arabia. This isn't like a little pop rocket. You know what I mean? Okay. It's a different scale of weaponry here. And that's in... It just shows that our, I, there is more continuity with Haran's organ with Iran's organizations than I initially thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, its tendrils really, really reach out far. Um there's mm-hmm. more continuity than I thought. And they're more of a single organization than I originally gave credit for, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're not I don't think they're all individual actors in which Iran is just helping because this seems a little more coordinated than that with the Houthis immediately getting involved a few days later. I don't know. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken went for a visit and then Biden himself goes a few days later, which which is a show that this is a big deal. Like they they care. Um, it does matter that those visits were made. Uh, the U.S. announced they would provide $100 million in humanitarian assistance for Gaza. And as we just discussed, the new bill asks for more humanitarian assistance for Gaza. Those things are very good because Gaza is a really terrifying and um, dangerous place to be right now. Yeah. I want to talk about the hospital bombing again. Okay. Because when that hospital was bombed, initially, every Western media outlet said 500 plus Palestinians killed from Israeli Palestinian from Israeli airstrike. Um, and then once you clicked on the article, it said that that was information was given to them by Hamas. Mm-hmm. Now, why would they run that headline? <laughs> mm. That was terrible media behavior, really bad. And you've listened to this podcast. You heard that we're not some super pro Israeli people because we're not, mm-hmm. but that is that is extremely irresponsible. And <clears throat> there are other um, pop news broadcasters on the internet that ran with that story hard and ran with all of these stories being leaked by Hamas exclusively very, very hard. And they're just spreading Hamas propaganda. You can you can chew gum and walk at the same time, okay? You can sit here and say that Hamas is gross and evil and lies and wants to kill Jews because they're Jews. And you can say that Israel has done a lot of bad things that has made the Palestinians rightfully angry at them. You can say both of those things. But don't be sitting here and just picking the side of Hamas because you're angry at American foreign policy too, mm-hmm. okay? Anti-American isn't an ideology. It, if you're anti-American, you're going to find yourself supporting some really, really bad, gross people sometimes. Oh, yeah. And I'm finding a lot of left-wing people on the internet are now supporting Hamas 
in that way because they're just anti-American. And that's as deep as their analysis will go. And there's no reason to do that. You can you can do both at the same time. You yeah. can say both are bad. And and I think the even the like deeper idea behind supporting Hamas is like supporting the Palestinian people. And yet they're the ones who are inciting these airstrikes and totally don't care about using the Palestinian population as a human meat shield, mm-hmm. right? Like they are, they are just terrible for these Palestinians. That they, they're the ones who, when they were elected to rule Gaza, r- ramped up tensions that had been declining for for years. Yeah, it's it doesn't make any sense to support Hamas at all. Like I mean, if you're if you're just going anti-America, it means that you're going to support Al-Qaeda after the 9/11 attacks. Well, that's what that's what the, some of them will say, right? Some of them will say that America deserved 9/11 and all that, which is insanity. No. Which is insanity. No. Just like it's insanity to say that Israel deserved this yes. after what they've done. Yes. They what they've done is terrible. What some of the things America has done is terrible. There's no But excuses. perpetuating the cycle of violence is not the answer. Mm-hmm. That's why we would call for a ceasefire here. Mm-hmm. There needs to be other solutions. Yes, I highly agree. Yeah. Really well said. Um, so so yeah, the the big picture on the U.S. were very supportive. The one thing Biden said um, that I did like is I want to caution Israel from responding really emotionally to this because that's what we did when we went into Iraq and it was a terrible decision. Um, and it got a lot of Americans killed. That was the perfect thing to say. Yes, it absolutely was. It absolutely was. The perfect thing to say. And it takes balls. Yeah. Because if Amer- if an American politician said, I know you guys are all angry about 9-11, but don't act on that, he would have gotten kicked out of the country. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The fact that Biden went up and said that it shows that he has a care for the Palestinian people that a lot of other presidents wouldn't and haven't had. Definitely. And it's because of pressure of the progressive movement. Mm-hmm. It's the pressure of the left wing, not the stupid left wing that's defending Hamas. Forget about them. They're mm-hmm. irrelevant, okay? The true left wing that is supporting Palestinian liberation. Yeah, that cares about the oppressed Yes. in this. Yes, yes. That's what matters. And now... The last part. Because this is a global chess game, unfortunately. Always. Russia and China are responding alongside Iran. Yes. They're aligning pretty hard with Palestine. And in China specifically, there's a lot of anti-Israeli sentiment. Um, An Israeli ambassador was stabbed over there. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of anti-Israeli sentiment. To be honest, like as far as the chess game, I think they're they're framing this exactly as they should be. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. the Chinese foreign minister Wang, Wang Yi said, Israel's actions have gone beyond the scope of self-defense. I think I'd agree. I agree. I agree. Um, and it called on Israel to stop its, quote, collective punishment I agree. of Gaza residents. I agree. Uh, yeah, it it makes sense. It, it places them really squarely in opposition to the U.S. in a way that they, they do kind of look like the good guys. Yeah. Um, in Russia... Putin has expressed sympathy for the Palestinians and blamed the U.S. As, as he said, I think that many people will agree with me that this is a vivid example of the failure of United States policy in the Middle East. And I agree. And I agree. And that sucks. Yeah. We 
have been in a position of power to do something and de-escalate the situation by holding Israel accountable. And mm-hmm. we have decided time and time again not to do that. And now we've gotten to a point where we almost can't do anything but but support Israel. Yep. And we've we've backed ourselves into this corner. And I still think we should try. And I think we should say, you're killing hundreds of civilians a day. We're going to respond to that. We're going to sanction you. We're not going to send you this aid. I'm going to withdraw billions of dollars from this aid package that I've just suggested to Congress. But we're not doing that no. because we're scared of looking weak and we're scared that apologizing and saying we were wrong means we are proving ourselves to be wrong. Mm-hmm. I think the last thing I'll say is what we where we go from here. Now, I would... I think a ceasefire needs to happen. Yeah. I think that Israel has shown its ability to defend itself. I've read reports that 25% of homes in Gaza are gone. A quarter of the homes are just gone. If that's the case and those reports are accurate, even if it's 15%, okay, I'll give you a 10% confidence interval range, okay? Mm -hmm. If it's 15% of homes in Gaza gone, you made your point. Yeah. And we got to come to some sort of agreement here. Hamas needs to be... Hamas needs to be taken out of government fairly, okay? I understand that. And any type of terrorism can't be tolerated. But there has to be a movement towards a two-state solution. But, and that's the United States position. But is it possible? I don't know if it's possible, which is why it makes me so frustrated. Yeah. Because I say, yeah, I want a two-state solution, but it makes me feel like, yeah, I want to see a leprechaun tomorrow. Yeah. Well, I, I think that the truth is, like, we we work pretty hard and try to learn a lot about the things that we do deep dives on specifically on this show to figure out what we want moving forward, mm-hmm. how to solve these problems. I can honestly say this is the first time where I have little to no idea. Yeah. Because there needs to be a higher power to draw the lines, but it also isn't okay for those lines to be drawn unilaterally by a higher power without the acceptance of either side or even both sides. I I don't I don't I don't know. The only thing that I know I want going forward is for the killing of children to stop on both sides. Yeah. That's the only thing that I know I want to happen. And I wish that was the priority of the American government, but it doesn't look like that's the priority. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's end it there. Bye, guys. Bye.